Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. What up, what up, what up, everybody? This is Double G for the Fight Game Podcast. What a crazy week it has been, the post-WrestleMania week. I don't know, John, I found myself Monday so disinterested uh, in the empty arena wrestling. It was almost like WrestleMania was the apex, and I, I was get trying to get there and kind of excited to see the culmination or just the, the biggest show that you could possibly do with this stuff. And by Monday, I was just drained. I don't know what it was, like an adrenaline dump of of uh, just disinterest, I guess, from, from my end. No, same same here. I mean, uh, Wednesdays roll around. I'm usually pretty excited to watch some wrestling from both shows. And this Wednesday rolled around, I was like, I had like a glimmer, a glimmer of like excitement. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, the takeover matches and stuff. And then I'm like, you know, think about real life. And then what we're going to see more empty arena and I don't know, it just still just bums me out, man. I just can't wait. And it's going to be a long time, but I just can't wait till we get shows in front of fans again and that energy going again. And uh, I was watching when I watched Wednesday, I was just thinking about takeover Portland, how killer that show was. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like, man, if just if all this didn't happen, you know, I'm sure they would have had a killer takeover in, uh, in Tampa as well. I'm, and you know, it, it's just, it was weird. And all that stuff. So yeah, I'm like you, man. I'm kind of, I'm kind of just over it. Um, I'm kind of like pacifying my wrestling need by watching old stuff lately, and so I'm keeping that alive with that. Yeah, so, yeah. But I know we, I mean, watching Wednesdays, what we watched Wednesdays, we're covering it. But it's, you know, maybe I might skip it if I if we weren't. Yeah, no, I, I definitely hear you. So there was there's other stuff this week as well. The UFC is kind of in the news, and we'll talk about that in a second. There was the Brawl for All uh, Dark Side of the Ring episode, which uh, I found entertaining, though uh, frustrating at the same time. Um, and then uh, we're going to bring on uh, Robert Silva later in this show. He's going to go over his top 10 uh, box, greatest boxers of all time. So he... he you know, he's in the last couple of years, he's edited down his list and changed it up a little bit. So we're going to bring him on um, before we get to our We Want Flair segment, actually. So we'll save We Want Flair for last because what we're going to talk about on uh, these next three episodes of this podcast is uh, Ric Flair heading to WWF in 1991, uh, having the, the house show run with Hogan. The Survivor Series uh, uh, his, being his first big time match uh, on the WWF banner, and uh, we'll leave. We'll 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 sort of stop there with uh, with this first segment. But uh, and then next week we'll talk about the Royal Rumble um, and and sort of the fallout uh, of that and him being chosen uh, as the guy heading into WrestleMania. And then on the third segment, we will talk about that WrestleMania match with uh, Macho Man Randy Savage. 
usually, you know, we only really talk about one match and, and have that on the second episode and then do a, sort of a, a follow up on that last one. But because there's so much stuff and because that Royal Rumble is so important to this story, I decided to split it up a little bit. So we will talk about two matches. We'll talk about the Royal Rumble and we will talk about the WrestleMania uh, eight match against Randy Savage, which did tremendous in our um, in our Facebook group tournaments, both WrestleMania eight and the Savage and Flair match. Just great nostalgia for uh, for those who who follow that uh, follow that group. So let's actually. I just also wanted to mention, you know, we are sponsored by Bet Online, uh, our, our partners in, in crime in this. Uh, but let's start with the UFC 249 stuff because it is really at the top of mind for me because all of the news just came out a couple of hours ago uh, as of when we're recording, which is, um, and I guess we have to kind of start in, in, the, in the beginning, which is Dana White has said from day one, that this show was going to to happen, he said. You know, you j- just bet against me. I want all of you who, who you know bet against me. Go for it. Like this show is going to happen. I prove everybody wrong. All of you media saying it's blah blah blah. So he uh, he. It was his time to kind of uh, to do it and and to run it. And supposedly he had the uh, the. Uh, what is it called? The Taichi Palace, I believe, in Lemoore, California, which is on a reservation. So it is not uh, it is not a, a California. Uh, it's not regulated by the, the California State Athletic Commission, which has stopped all shows from happening uh, through I forget, I think through the end of May. So. It's not like they could just run California or anything, so they 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 decided to run the the uh, the reservation, which historically has has been a place where people ran MMA shows before you know before they had regulation and you could get in California and all that stuff. So that was his goal. Uh, Khabib was not the fight for Tony Ferguson any longer because Khabib is in Russia and it's just basically like you know what I really can't get out. Though he, I don't know, maybe he could, but, you know, he just was like, look, like, why? <laughs> like, and to me, I was like, you know, Khabib looks like the biggest star out of all of them because all these guys are like trying to save Dana's show and Khabib's the one going like, hmm, I'm, I'm good. Well, well, I can wait. And, uh, and, and, you know, so that he has ton, he has so much leverage right now, but, um, and so they, the Dana said Justin Gaethje was going to take that spot, and he had a card, and and this was actually going to happen. And I was talking to my youngest um, because uh, I was over there, I was over at their house on uh, on uh, WrestleMania Saturday, and so I hung out with them. We watched WrestleMania, and then I was going to go back for this UFC show to hang out with them and just to kind of you know check in and see what was going on. And so we were kind of excited for the show, even though you know if you ask me. Like if I feel that it should happen, I don't feel it should happen. But if it did, definitely going to watch it. Like that's just kind of what we do. And so um, today it was canceled. And it sounds like it was canceled because now I've heard I've heard two stories. So um, Diane Feinstein sent a um, she I think she was a tweet or some sort of press release or something. Um, about how she didn't think this show should happen. 
And uh, so Senator Dianne Feinstein, so she didn't think it was it, it should happen. And she kind of pleaded with, you know, the UFC and ESPN to not run it. And it was like very soon thereafter that that press release came out that Dana was on ESPN and uh, basically said, you know, it's not going to happen. But the other story, and I haven't really seen uh, a lot about this, but the other story was that Gavin Newsom somehow was in contact with uh, with Disney. And uh, because of that, uh, they may have shut it down. So, you know, whatever the reason is, uh, it looks like that is, uh, you know, that's so it's definitely not going to happen. But, you know, Dana was like, look, like, you know, ESPN is a great partner and, you know, it's basically their call. They said not not to do it. And I'm not going to defy them. Obviously, they're they're the they're the partner that that pays them the money for the shows. So uh, he did say that his idea of uh, Fight Island was still going to happen. So, you know, the idea that you can buy an island uh, and, and uh, you know, there's you don't have to worry about certain regulations and you can just fly people in and out. And I don't know, that, that sounds even scarier than doing it at the Taiji Palace to me. But um, but yeah, so, I mean, you know, you heard all this stuff, I'm sure, today. Uh, what were your thoughts on just the madness of this whole situation? If we can like put it on laugh track, just a loud laugh track in right now. That's that's my reaction. I just I saw the tweets and I was just like dying. I was like, of course, of course it's gonna be canceled, Dana. Gosh. What an idiot. Maybe this guy's just scared of being home, you know, quarantine at house. Maybe his wife just drives him nuts. I don't know what his issue is, but like, dude, give it up. Forget fight island. This is all just stay home, be safe. And when this is all ends up, you know, Betting that curve, hopefully soon, then we'll start, you know, looking at the live sports and all that stuff again. It's just, I don't know. It's just, it's just a bunch of ridiculousness, and and I'm glad it got canceled. I'm really, I'm really, I'm really happy. I'm really happy. There's some egg on his face over this because he deserves it. It does sound though like it is Endeavor, the the uh, company that owns the UFC. They're struggling, and it does sound like there's influence uh, from Endeavor to try and and do this, right? Because, you know, for, for ESPN, they are going to pay the UFC when they have the ability to run these shows. So, you know, if UFC needs to make up money uh, at the end of the year and these live shows do happen, we're probably going to get like midweek shows because they just need to run a specific number of them mm-hmm. in order to get the money that that they are, are promised from ESPN. But this one is, you know, this is ES, this is a pay-per-view and, and it's just, you know, I I get it to, to some extent. Um you know, they are a big investment for Endeavor, but there's no gate for a show like this. And, uh, you know, and and the, uh, you know, the UFC makes a fixed amount for pay-per-view from ESPN. So that's that's going to be a, a big number. But the other piece of that formula for them is, you know, running and being able to get several million dollars out of the gate, which you can't get today. So, you know, there it must be, you know, it must be a little... Uh, uh, I guess uh, not panic time or anything, but you know I'm sure there's some pressure on Dana to 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 be creative to figure out how to do this stuff. It's just you know unfortunately there's forces uh, and natural forces in addition to you know people who are trying to um, make sure that uh, 
that they kind of, like you said, you know, help with this curve thing. And I think, I think for Diane Feinstein, her major point was like, look, like, you know, the fighters could get sick. And then, you know, when they go back to all of their homes, then mm-hmm. they could pass it on. But also the other thing is like, you, you know, sort of like you are setting a, a res- you, you know, sort of responsible. And, and, and if you're doing this, then it just gives people, you know, the idea that the social distancing thing isn't, isn't as big of a deal as it is. So I, I, I you know, I, I didn't think it was going to happen. And then I thought, wow, maybe this is going to happen. And then today it kind of all fell out. So uh, the other thing that was uh, pretty sad, actually, is Rose Namajunas was going to fight on this show. She was going to be in the semi-main event. And two of her relatives passed mm. uh, because of, you know, related to coronavirus. So, you know, she was, you know, you can imagine just the me- mentally, like, you know, what folks are going through. And then there's the whole thing about cutting weight and your immune system being down when you cut weight. And I mean, I, I couldn't imagine that a lot of these fighters were going to make weight anyways. Like, can you, can you imagine how they were going to do that? Like just being at home or, you know, being, um, in, in, uh, I don't know what, what kind of gym could they be in a hotel room? They're going to have like a, uh, they're going to have an elliptical machine in their hotel room or something yeah. to help them cut off that, you know, excess uh, water weight. But yeah, so, you know, not going to happen, but, um, you know, Dana is adamant that, Fight Island is going to be the thing and they're going to run, you know, weekly and and maybe even, you know, in the midweek to make up for some of these shows that that they're not getting paid for that they're missing. But, you know, one thing that Dana did say that um, I thought was good was, you know, because everyone worries about fighter pay and, you know, fighting is really about you fight, you you get money. And, and if you don't, then, then you don't get any money. So, you know, if there is a shutdown for a lengthy period of time, a lot of these fighters are not going to make money. You know, a lot of some of them probably have side jobs, too. But, I th- you know, he said, you know, as soon as this thing gets, you know, get, gets going, we're going to have everyone booked on the an amount of fights that they were going to be booked on. So I just hope. You know, some of these folks have a little bit of money saved or they're able to figure out how to deal uh, in the meantime, because that's the thing that, you know, you and I can say, oh, you know, people should social distance and they should, you know, they should like be disciplined. And and um, but, you know, we're also okay with our jobs. So, you know, that's a that's a thing that's hard for me to kind of deal with, which is this mentality where of, you know, I'm so thankful for my position and a lot of my friends, you know, and, and people who are you know, a little bit closer to my age and, you know, we're a little bit older than than most of these fighters. Um, but I, I guess we're older than almost all of them now. Jeez. Probably now. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we we our jobs are paying us right now and, you know, may have a little bit of money saved, but for some of these folks, they don't. And, it, and, you know, I, I do feel for them to that standpoint. Like I was telling someone today, I was like, look, you know, I can definitely be for discipline and flattening the curve and, and social distancing and being okay with all this. And at the same time, feel for people who are struggling and feel for the economy. Like it doesn't have to, you don't have to be on one side or the other. And, and I get it completely. I really feel for people who, you know, their, their livelihoods have been taken away and, you know, their, their jobs and they're on furlough and all of those things you, you read about these and you see these in the, in the news, um, you know, all day long and, you know, heart goes out to everybody. Like I, I feel, I really do feel, feel lucky, but looks like something could happen, you know, to us too. So mm-hmm. we you know, you just, I think you just have to, 
try to stay positive and, and stay, you know, mentally sane and, you know, do as much as you can for your family. But yeah, so that's the situation with uh, UFC. But you know who's not stopping doing shows? Uh, one Vince McMahon. There, it sounds like their schedule is going to keep going through this week. I don't know how many shows they're going to tape through this week, but you would think that they would try and do like, you know, several, several weeks worth, right? Because AEW is, is taped through, I think, right before the Double or Nothing show. So they have stuff in the can. I, I wonder how much WWE has. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they're going to be taping a lot coming up this week and it's best to do it now and just kind of get everything out there you can and you get and you get creative obviously you can show old footage and you know eat up a lot of time and so you know you don't need a bunch of talent but you definitely need some key talent and on AEW I feel when I watch that show it, it suffers from some key talent not being there um but uh but yeah that's that's, the key, that's one of the keys is to get everyone and and um it seems like WWE's been able to, for the most part, use everyone they need to use. But, you know, other other ones are struggling, though. Yeah. So we will get back to WWE and AEW in a few minutes. But before that, we're going to talk about the uh, dark side of the ring, the brawl for all. And even before that, we're going to talk about our friends at Bet Online. So, as everyone knows, no NBA, no NHL, no Major League Baseball. And Major League Baseball has like a wacky idea to run in Arizona that I just think is like not smart at all as much as I want to see baseball come back. But anyways, um, you might think there's nothing to bet on, but you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. And if you're missing the NFL, no problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. So mm -hmm. they're doing sims of Madden that you could actually place bets on. That's actually kind of cool. And I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, they're showing like... Uh, professional basketball players playing 2k against other professional basketball players like i think it's like on espn or something like people are being really creative right now um you can also bet on survivor which i am a huge fan of and i'm watching weekly it's like the one uh you know it's one of the the main shows that are that's still running because they have the whole season in the can like in and survivor is fantastic this year uh, Big Brother, American Idol, Stocks, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. I may do some research on that one so I can actually put some money on uh, on, a, on the possibility of who's going to win that. Uh, all open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet online, your online wagering solution. Okay, so let's talk about this uh, dark side of the ring. We've been talking about every episode so far. Uh, out of the three, how, how would you rank? How would you rank the the brawl for all out of the three? Um, I'll give this one uh, number in the number two slot over uh, New Jack. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that one was the most uh, maybe the most salacious one. You know, if you if you if you're interested in that brawl for all. It's so funny because, you know, we think about the Attitude Era and because of how old we, we were in our lives and you're sort of thinking about like, 
you know, it doesn't seem that long ago, but that was like 22 years ago. How can it possibly be 22 years ago? Because it is, and we're getting old, man. We're getting oh, no. we're getting really old. It's crazy. Like I, I feel like uh, you know, I was watching Stone Cold Steve Austin in his heyday like five years ago. That like that's literally what it feels like. Yeah. Um. So when you were watching this back, did you remember all of that stuff that was going on with Brawl for All? Um, majority of it. I didn't even. I didn't know about the whole. It was. I don't know if this is a human true story, but. The, you know, I didn't know about Vince Russo's idea being, you know, just to get back at JBL or prove him wrong or something like that. So I thought that was interesting. Um, I, I found it entertaining. Um, I liked, uh, I thought Cornette was great. Um, I really, like, had a an appreciation for Bart Gunn. And I always thought he got, you know, the short end of the stick after he won oh, his yeah. deal. So I always had like a soft place in my my heart for Bart Gunn, and you know it was cool to see him and talk about it and and have his his opinions of it. And he's, you know, probably the most honest person on that. You know, well, I think Fournette's pretty honest. You know, he has a little bit of showboating in him, but um, yeah, I thought he, you know, from his perspective, that was uh, that was my highlight. And then I also like seeing draws. It also made me sad to see draws and mm-hmm. brought back memories of what happened to him and they did talk about it with Delos. That was, uh, that was some interesting stuff. But other than that, it was just a fun, fun hour. Okay. So there were two stories that I wanted them to unravel a little bit more. The first story is the Dr. Death, Steve Williams portion of this, because I mean, you have Jim Ross right there, right? Like Jim Ross is not only there that you're interviewing him today, but he's also behind the scenes as one of the decision makers. And I thought the simple question, it may have been a little bit confrontational, but, you know, that's your guy. Was this thing built for him to win? And did, you know, was it? frustrating when he didn't and who got blamed for it like that's like that really was was a a question that i think they could have asked jr um and the other one is about bart gunn because from his point of view he feels like they were out there to uh not take him seriously from the beginning and then when he started winning it was as if they were gonna like he was going to have to pay for it because he wasn't the chosen one. And I think there's some argument as to whether or not that was the case. I heard Big Dave Meltzer talk today about the Butterbean fight. And, you know, some some people think that the reason why the Butterbean fight happened was because they wanted to punish uh, Bart Gunn. But Big Dave says that they actually thought he would win the fight. So that wasn't that that wasn't what the plan was. But I wanted to hear more about like, okay, like what's the real story here? Like Bart Gunn is, says in, in, in the episode, he's willing to play ball with these guys. Mm-hmm. They're like, nope, you know, you don't have to worry about it. Like, you're gonna, you know, you're basically, you're going to lose anyways. And it doesn't happen. And then because it doesn't happen, he feels like he was punished. And, you know, I know that he, they, they didn't really book him seriously at, at all after that. And, and when he got knocked out, I don't remember exactly if that was his last WWE booking or not, but I don't remember seeing him. And he actually had a successful career after that, which you would not really gauge from this episode. 
But I thought those two, like those were two parts of the story that I wanted more of. The stuff that I did not want was Cornette and Russo arguing over who's the bigger idiot. Like, you know, we had we sat through that in, in Montreal, the Montreal episode, which, you know, became the Cornette and Russo show. And it was almost getting there with this one, though it wasn't as bad. I was just like, but, you know, because we saw it already. I was like, OK, I'm done. Who cares? You guys don't like each other. Nobody cares. Let's move on. But, you know, this is maybe what gets ratings or what what, you know, what the producers think are going to get ratings of these guys. The, the thing, it just it was just a little sad to me because, you know, both of these guys, like, I don't know how old Jim is, but I think Russo said he was 60 or something. And it's just like two guys bickering over something that was 22 years ago and neither of them very mature in any way. And I'm just like, ugh, like, you know, imagine someone who's never watched wrestling before goes like, who are these old guys like yelling at the screen? Like it, it doesn't make them look great. Um, so that was my, my main problem with the show. And I just wanted those other stories like uh, unraveled, like that ball of yarn to just keep going a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, but you know, they don't, they obviously you don't have Vince McMahon there to, and Vince McMahon probably doesn't even remember what happened anyways. But I just thought those were two things that were the intriguing pieces of the documentary and that I just wanted to hear about more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised like WWE or, or Vince didn't, uh, capitalize on Bart a little bit after he won that tournament. I mean, I know, you know, they talked about, you know, him being, you know, the mid card guy, tag team guy, you know, but, you know, coming off of this tournament win, and we can, it's easy to really book him to get some continued momentum. Like you just have him weekly, just knock out guys with one punch. Right. I mean, not legitimate, but you know, like, you know, work, work, a work match, now he's knocking out guys and and you know slowly getting close to maybe he's on maybe he's not a guy that's gonna challenge Austin but what if he wrestled a guy like I don't know Kane or Mankind or Undertaker or something like that or you know I'm gonna knock out the Undertaker and you know they have a match and he doesn't you know you can you could build it up to you could have done something with him it was just and it was sad um because he was literally gone after WrestleMania. I don't mm-hmm. think I've ever seen him again. I, I'm pretty darn sure unless he did some heats or or whatever those shows they had, those the C shows they had I didn't watch. But, um, you know, he went to All Japan and had a good career there, even though All Japan at the time, you know, a lot of people left and Misawa took a majority of the talent and started Noah. So, you know, he was part of that All Japan group keeping it going still. Um, with uh, his tag team partner was Wolf Hawksfield, who a lot of people will probably remember, if they probably won't remember, was uh, in WCW Jungle Jim Steele in 1993. Mm. But I, I think you have to remember him. Yeah, because he was, you know, very green and a big buff guy, wore like, the Tarzan gear, and, but very green and really bad at the time. But end up being a, a pretty darn good professional wrestler in Japan as Wolf Hawksfield for by getting that experience there. So they had a they had a really fun, fun tag team. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wish they would have mentioned just a little, maybe a little note talking about how you know he continued on his career and did well in Japan. But they kind of made it like he just went out and did you know shoot fighting instead of or mixed martial arts instead of um, wrestling. Uh, but other than that, it was it was fun. Um, I thought Godfather was entertaining, you know and 
Um, Jim Ross is just Jim Ross, right? Like, you know, the way he explains stuff and describes it and it's just, he just has that way. His, his, his cadence is always very interesting to me. And, um, he always seems like he's, he's, uh, exasperated by the question before it even gets asked. All I know is I am going to just drop some JR in my next like raise meeting. Like, I mean, like I'm here, man. I, I, give me a Jersey. You know, that's going to drop shit like that and mm-hmm. like get a raise. I mean, I usually always get raises anyways when I go in there and start demanding, not demanding, but you know, when I'm, you know, now it's time for me to get a little more. I might yeah. do a little, I might do a little, man, I'm just happy to have a jersey, man. I, you know, I'll, I'll give me the ball, give me the ball. <laughs> just stuff like that. I bet they'll get a kick out of it and mark, you just go mark out for it next, you know, I'm getting paid. So I don't know. <laughs> Just I it, it it was entertaining it was fun it was fun um I don't know what's coming up next I forget what they the I think it's the uh, Jimmy Snuka and uh, oh, Nancy Argentino yeah that's gonna be a rough one yeah that's gonna be a rough one yeah no I I agree that 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 but you know out of all the stories that's the one we probably know the least about true very true yes definitely I'm, so, I'm looking forward to all of them um. I just wish I, I kind of wish I just had Dave next to me when I'm watching these damn things. I want to know what was like, what's, what's fake. Sometimes I don't remember and what's, what's bullshit like, you know, but other than last so, episode, so, I got uh, that right away. So he did say, uh, and this is Dave mentioning on his show, Wrestling Observer Radio. He did say that originally the thing was for Shamrock, but Shamrock was not going to do it because he wanted to train for it. And when Severn, won his first fight, uh, WWE told him not to to continue because he was just going to take down everybody and it was going to be really boring. So mm-hmm. they didn't want him to be to be in it. Yeah. Uh, imagine the, the lack of foresight on that. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, yeah, the, guy is, the guy was a, you know, UFC champion, like or UFC fighter, main event fighter, you know, only a, like a few years before that. Yeah, and then I, I like the story. I, like, I mean, the Bart story, you know, it's the main story of it, really made it for me. And him describing the locker room talk of guys like laughing, like, oh, you're going to get your butt kicked by Dr. Death. No problem. No problem. Just kind of like, you can, you know, if you're going to a real fight, you I mean, that could definitely get your blood boiling, get you focused. And, and, uh, it, it worked out in his, you know, his favor that night. But unfortunately, it just didn't really do his career wonders. And like I said, I'm still shocked by like, you know, sometimes you just, you get what you get, you get what's given to you and try to make a positive out of it. And sure, you yeah. weren't looking at Bart Gunn when this thing started. You thought he was an afterthought. But hey, let's, since he won this damn thing, let's, let's stretch it out as much as we can until it finally falls off. Then we can beat him and be done with it. You know, the one thing that I f- had forgotten about was how nasty those knockouts were you had you had godfather Mm -hmm. you had jbl um and who was the other person he had knocked out or was that Um, it i think well no godfather jbl who else did he knock out oh bob well he knocked out bob holly just went to yeah they went to a decision but those knockouts were nasty those guys are like you know, out cold. Like this is like legit, like a, you know, legitimate, like heavyweight boxing match knockout. So that, that was shocking. Cause I didn't remember exactly how those, how those finishes happened. The other thing, you know, the other thing, this is a nitpicky thing. You know, this is the nitpickiest thing of all nitpicky things. Right. But we had the footage. So we didn't need the guys to recreate the scenes in the dark ring. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That frustrated me just from a, 
content creator perspective, like, ah, why did they do that? They had the footage. Like you didn't need to recreate those moments um, because you had it all. And, uh, but you know, I get it. That's just their thing. That's how they do it. What about like Vince Russo just being like totally slimy and then at the end, well, now that I know about the CTE and I feel really, (laughs) Jesus, Muhammad Ali was, you know, was slurring words in the, in the late seventies, early eighties. Like we knew the best. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, um, yeah. So next one is the Jimmy Snooker one and uh, we'll talk about it uh, next week. So quickly, we do not really want to talk a lot about the uh, Wednesday night stuff, but there, I mean, you know, the NXT show had two big matches that they had been saving for takeover that happened on this show. Uh, I mean, we could talk about the first one, which was the, the, the women's ladder match, which as a ladder match, it was not, there was I didn't really see anything wrong with it, but you know we watched that ladder match at WrestleMania, and those those three guys did a pretty good job of you know, but they're also like so athletic and they're doing crazy spots and stuff, and you know this was this was more women, but I don't know, I, I it was like you know I, I don't want to blame anybody, but it just the, you know this was like the the not necessarily the ladder match that you know you're kind of looking for when you see that on the marquee of oh we're gonna have a ladder match tonight. I was like uh kind of I guess um it, it definitely needed the crowd to get it over that hump I was the first part of it I thought was wasn't that good the beginning of it before they started grabbing ladders just to you know just the early on stuff I thought was really 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 weak and I guess overly choreographed or something i just it just didn't wasn't working for me i thought that you know the girls were working hard towards the end i mean they worked hard on the match but they were working you know doing some crazy stuff and um eo was out there flying all around and chelsea uh chelsea green took that um that crazy bump towards the end her and uh, robert you know uh, what's his name of victor not victor stone <laughs> what's his name uh uh robbie uh Robert Stone Enterprises, yeah, or yeah, something? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So he, um, he, you know, him, they, then they took that big bump at the end. Um, Tegan took a bump on the ladder. I, I think it would have been much better with the, um, with the crowd there for the, you know, kind of giving her over that hump of some of the stuff that it was missing. But I don't know, it was, it was, a, it was a disappointment. I'm glad they didn't take too many crazy bumps, though. I think they did took a little too many crazy pumps at the same time. So it was safer than I was expecting. So that, that was good. Here's the interesting thing for me in just the whole setting of this, of this thing. So at WrestleMania, which originally was going to be the Sunday, uh, the Sunday show, one show at, at, at the stadium in Tampa, they had a ladder match. It was originally going to be a, a three team ladder match. So six individuals in, in the match, the night before, they were going to do a ladder match with all these women. And then a month later, they're going to do an entire show built around two ladder matches. Yeah. Like, it was overkill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's everything in wrestling is overkill. Yeah. But no, I agree. A lot of ladders. I would have been probably, I would have probably been over it by the first ladder match on that, on that, you know, the women's match. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, ladder matches just aren't my thing in general so i like some of the stories they told um some callbacks at you know tegan um um choke slamming dakota through the table mm-hmm. 
um, or no, that was um, uh, sorry, Reina Gonzalez to the table helping uh, uh, do that because you know Reina was the one that interfered in Portland and cost her the match, and so I like that. Um, they had some cool story stuff in it. Um, I like Chelsea Green hurting her knee, like middle match. She's out there, and you think she's out for the match, and you know, uh, you know, her manager getting her up there to go get it. I thought that was cool. Like, like they had good things in it. Definitely had good things. It's just. You know, with these with these shows, it's like there's certain matches that you can get away with having no audience, and then and there's matches that you definitely feel they need it. And this is the one. This is definitely one of those matches. So the other big match on this show, and this is like their money match. You know, the the one that they were sort of marketing so many things around, which is Gargano and Ciampa, the last time that they were going to have this match, and. So we talked about this after the WrestleMania show, which was very creative, cinematic storytelling with the Boneyard match, John Cena and, and the Firefly, Firefly Funhouse match, just a just a production, uh, crazy production. And then you had the Edge and Randy Orton match, which was this long, drawn-out fight. And so you put the you put the two of those together. You know, this wasn't really much related to the Firefly Funhouse match, but you put those other two together, and that's that's what you kind of have with this. It was produced in like this cinematic style, and it was better, I think, probably than the the Edge and Randy Orton match, but still super long, and in this setting. After we had just seen WrestleMania, you know, look, we we watched seven hours or six and a half hours of wrestling over the weekend. This show, you saw the two hour version. I only saw the one hour version and then AEW. So if you're a wrestling fan over these last four days or five days, like you're in double digits in the hours of wrestling spent. So they decided to go like the full hour with this match, which, you know, I, I think I could have been invested in like a, a 13 to 15 minute match, sort of like what we said about the edge and Randy Orton thing. But as I realized when I started watching how much time was left on this show, I immediately kind of got psyched myself out. And I was just like, this, this is, I almost didn't want to watch it because I was almost like, maybe if nobody watches this match, They'll forget about it and they'll do it again when the crowd comes back and then I'll be psyched to watch it. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But I was trying to like, you know, try and just make it go away. But it happened and they tried to to get something out of it. I didn't I didn't really get it uh, as far as the the cinema piece of it. I don't think it necessarily needed it. Um, And then it, it was just too long. So, you know, the guys worked crazy they're these guys you know these guys are going to work their ass off every single time so you get the effort and everything you know candace uh, Lorray comes in and and you know says oh you know why are you guys doing this and you want me to hate my husband okay and then you know she does the the low blow stuff and helps uh helps johnny win and johnny's wearing the cup and all that so you know they told that story the you know the baby face kind of gets outsmarted here but I don't know. I just felt like this was like a wasted moment, but it's not anybody's fault that it's a wasted moment. You know, I was just kind of so conflicted watching this match. 
Oh yeah, I mean, I'm watching this match too, and and just thinking like, yeah, it just sucks what's going on in the real world. That's you know they had to change their plans, and now we're getting this. And what we got wasn't bad. Like you, I agree. And just like the Edge and Orton match, I thought it was probably ten minutes too long, or maybe even fifteen minutes too long. Um, I also didn't think it needed the cinema, you know, movie style production of it. I think I would rather have like a more of a raw, you know, style to it. Um, maybe dim the dim the house lights a little bit and all that kind of stuff or but uh, i was kind of i kind of, kind of chuckled because they went on top of a uh, a semi you know like i just saw this on on uh, sunday oh yeah two guys fighting on the semi so i thought that was kind of funny and, and i don't know coincidental because i don't know when they filmed what and and all that um i thought both men worked really hard and they i believe they're fighting each other i they, they did a great job um the the twist at the end, the the turn by Candice, which which I felt was happening um, with Johnny. I, I didn't think that she would be baby faced for too long with Johnny now as a heel. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if I like the execution of it. I you know her low blowing Johnny. You know, even though he wore a cup and haha, it's like, well, damn, does all does all fighters not wear cups? It's like, you know, I just thought that was kind of silly. But um, I much rather like, you know, Johnny, you know, her telling these guys to stop it and telling Johnny to stop it, but he's so enraged that he kind of shoves her to the side, and then you know, Champa kind of coming to her aid and and then and, and, and beating up on Johnny and then, but then she really is really just a rusing or something like that. But you know, I don't know. I just, I thought that, I thought that was a little, a little funky, but then again, this whole situation is funky. And, um, I know these guys wanted this big epic match in Tampa and, and it's, you know, yeah, unfortunately they couldn't do it. And then it just kind of sucks. I think I like, I think NXT has some real momentum going with some creative creatively, you know, leading up to, to uh, take over tampa and it's just yeah i'm biggest show of the year right yeah yeah and like i said like that portland show was probably my favorite show of the year so far of wrestling show this year um and i was like so super psyched for you know nxt and tampa and um not getting it so i hope man let's just get this going again guys let's get this going again soon hopefully all right, uh, quickly, we'll just talk about AEW very quickly because I want to get to Robert and then I want to get to the We Want Flair segment. Um, there were three long matches on this show. And I think you could, you know, you could make, uh, you know, it's wrestling subjective, right? But the one that was the most interesting to me was the women's match. And it wasn't because necessarily of wrestling excellence, though, you know, they 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 were they are much better together now than they would have been, you know, five months ago or whatever. But there was a, a, a broken nose that caused, uh, you know, that 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 made that match work a, a little bit better for me in the end. It was a little bit too long still, but I thought uh, the Britt Baker and the uh, Sheeta match was uh, fairly entertaining. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would call it good even, but it was just like a, a an entertaining match with a with a very compelling finish on a show that didn't have much of either for me. And, you know, just, it was just a show, but I thought that was the one, like if I think about what stood out in my brain after I watched that entire show, maybe maybe Spears, you know, getting pinned by a, a figure four, which we don't, we almost never see. 
and and you know the the bloody nose and 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 the finish of that match is probably the the two things. Well, I took away not even anything any it's all nothing from the wrestling. I I took a, my favorite stuff was the buildup of Jake Hager and John Moxley for the championship. They did the uh, you know um, twenty boxing twenty four seven kind of style presentation of that with you know them training and cutting promos and you know their interviews with their trainers or at least one jake hager side is his trainer his wife i thought that stuff was great i was like man this is like the best stuff i've seen from so i i I agree with you especially from hager's point of view but in the back of my mind i was like oh they're building to an empty arena match Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's why i was just like "Mm, I, i i can't i couldn't get up for it because of that reason I don't know I just I just really like that stuff. I thought that was great. I thought that stuff was really well produced. Like I said, one part of my favorite thing AEW's produced in a very long time, um, personally. And and then we have Kenny Omega, Nakazawa, and Best Friends match right after it, which totally killed. But <laughs> they were, you know, you had this great sports presentation build up. You feel like it's going to be a big match, and then you have this. And I I usually don't fast forward matches very rarely i literally just said no way i'm not watching this crap this is unbelievable this is ridiculous and it was embarrassing so i just fast forward that um i did like um the women's match only because i'm working from home and i got to watch it during the day i snuck away into our bedroom and i threw it on while i was working and my daughter you know she's all of a sudden she's like where's daddy at so Chloe found finds me in the bedroom and she wants to watch wrestling with me. And of course, the first match I'm watching is the women's match and and uh she's into it. She wants to know who's who and who's the, and I was trying to explain to her who's the good girl, who's the bad girl and she was cheering on Sheeta and she was excited and she was like, "Come on, Sheeta." She's like, "Go, go, go, go." And then like the blood happens. <laughs> And that's a whole other conversation I had to have right there, you know, about them all, you know, things happen, this and that. And um, she's really uh, concerned about the blood. But I thought Britton Baker had her best match in the company. I thought um, it wasn't great or anything. It wasn't uh, probably even technically sound or anything. It's just I think she's better in this role as a heel, working matches, being uh, some stalling and doing all that kind of stuff, doing the hiding behind that heel work to kind of – you know, hide her weaknesses. Yeah, mask the other stuff. Yeah, so I thought that was really good. Um, but other than that, uh, other than that, and um, the Jericho commentary, I thought we, I thought he was very entertaining and, and kept me into it. Uh, but other than that, I, I thought the rest of the show was kind of blah. So the Nakazawa Kenny Omega stuff, like there were moments when I laughed, sort of like you would laugh when Rikishi gives somebody the stink face the first time, not the. 7,000th time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was just too much. Like, like they're like, I, I get it. Like Omega's trying to basically tell everybody like, look, you can do this stuff too. It's fun. Everything doesn't have to be serious. But I think from a, um, I don't even know if it's from a casual standpoint. Like I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about, you know, who, who could be a fan of AEW that's not one right now and what they would want. I think the, the, the Jericho swagger stuff or Jericho Hager stuff is probably more along the lines of what would kind of suck somebody in. Cause they kind of know that 
that uh, Hager is legit just by looking at him. And, and if you know anything about Bellator, but I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I get the one or two spots. Like I get the orange Cassidy stuff that you could do for 10 seconds on one show and you know, people are going to hate it, but it doesn't really hurt the outcome of, of the matches for me um, as much as others. But this where it's like every minute and a half, there's a new joke and there's a new thing and there's a new uh, Gaga moment in the match. I was like, okay, like I yeah. just killed this. You know, I, I could deal with one or two of these, but when you did like six of them, it was just overkill for me. Yeah. Once Nakazawa fell into like a six, nine position to one of the guys, I was just like, all right, fast forward. I'm not going to watch this or how my daughter watched this. Um, like I said, it just hurts the credibility of what you just set up a segment before with the great Moxley Hager segment. And it's just, it's, it's frustrating. And also too, what stood out too was, uh, Matt Hardy had a promo on this show broken, uh, Matt Hardy. And I just, it's, this is a gimmick that's really had its time on a very smaller scale, Mm -hmm. but seeing it here, it's just not for me. It's just not working. It's it's too goofy. Um, um, I just yeah. I don't think it's really gonna last long. So I think I think some of that is what you said earlier, which is all of their guys aren't there. So if you had the full roster and Matt Hardy is doing this stuff kind of in the middle of the show, it it's 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 okay because he's an entertaining guy. But when it's like, <laughs> you know, he, he he's like the he's like probably like the second or you know, I don't know, maybe the as far as like star he's power. Right. Yeah, like he's in the top five for sure, clearly because of his WWE fame. And so, you know, when you look at him, you go, oh, wow, like he's more well known than most of these guys. But at the same time, he's not going to wrestle very many matches and he's not that character cannot be taken 100% seriously so when he is in that spot and he's like second or third from the top then you're right it doesn't work at all because it's not something that's going to be you know that you're going to bank your your company on but i think from an entertainment standpoint i do i get a kick out of it i just i just i think that you know with, with the roster the way that it is and you don't get to see all the guys, you know, no Young Bucks, no Lucha Bros, that he he kind of becomes like the third most well-known wrestler. And you're like, ah, like, you know, this is not main event stuff. So, you know, at, at the same time, we're kind of critiquing this because that's what we do. But you can't really critique it at the same time. I wonder if it's unfair to do so in this in this time frame. Uh, I, I wonder if uh, in a year from now, what the broken Matt Hardy. Will he still be doing that gimmick? If he is, I just can't, I can't imagine. I, I don't, I doubt it, but I just, I just don't see it. I don't see any longevity in it with this gimmick. I, you know, I mean, people, he probably is very frustrating in WWE, but at the same time, it's like, I can see why they don't want, they didn't want this on their television, you know? And I know they gave him a shot with it, but you know, I can see why they're like, nah, this is not working for us. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it makes sense. And, and look, you know, what does that mean that he's just going to go, Okay, it doesn't work. No, it's going to be like, oh, I, I'm going to make sure that that they missed the boat on it. And so he's going to try so hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's given the opportunity here. And Tony Khan and those guys will have to, 
you know, they'll have to determine whether it's working or not, or ultimately, you know, he's, he was going to be in in the blood and guts match. So that was going to be his debut. If it happens in that way, maybe we feel differently about the character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll see. All right. So, um, let's quickly, uh, throw it to the conversation I had with Robert. We talk about his series on super flyweights and then he counts down his greatest boxers of all time. Bringing in Robert here to talk some boxing. Robert, first I want to apologize and say last week I was supposed to get you on, but I had so many things going on with WrestleMania and I was trying to fit times in. And I figured, you know what? Once WrestleMania is over, we can talk about boxing. Let's bring on Robert. And now is that time. How are you? No apologies needed. All right. Because considering everything that the world is going through today, I'm doing fine. Holding down my fort, just like you're holding down your fort out there. So yeah, let's 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 uh talk some boxing, and um go ahead ask me whatever. All right, so uh, you just finished the list of your top five greatest super featherweights in boxing history, and uh, we put we put up uh, the last one, the number one, who is uh, Floyd Mayweather, and you specifically made it known to me that this wasn't Money Mayweather. Obviously, he was much lighter and he went by the name of pretty boy floyd which i knew but i know that you wanted to accentuate that point yes. because this was yes. clearly a different fighter not not different from the point of uh, of how good he was but two weight classes down uh and just dominating in, in that division but he dominated as pretty boy previous uh pre money mayweather yeah like I said in the article, before the, all the women, before the luxury cars, before that the the, the 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 multiple houses, before the entourage, before he was Money Mayweather, he was Pretty Boy Floyd Mayweather. There are two Floyd uh, Mayweathers. There's the Floyd Mayweather at Super Featherweight, which was as good as any fighter ever was in the history of boxing. I mean, this man, I remember when he defeated Gennaro Hernandez. To win the Super Featherweight WBC Championship. My father and I were watching the fight. And my father was like, you know what? This is the closest I've ever seen to Muhammad Ali. In the way he fights. The Floyd that became Money Mayweather. And everybody, you know, where he was the, the biggest combat sports star on the planet. And one of the five biggest athletes on the planet. Was a different Floyd. Because he had to adjust his style. He became more defensive oriented and he relied more on his smarts and his defensive acumen. Gone was the offensive display that he showed at super featherweight and briefly at at uh, lightweight and, su- and super lightweight. At welterweight and 154, he was fighting much bigger guys. So he had to rely on his still his advantage in speed and his is a ring acumen. I mean, one of the smartest fighters in the history of boxing. And I wish my father was alive to see that because that's what, another thing that he had in common with Muhammad Ali. When he lost a step, when he didn't have the advantages, the physical and uh, the physical advantages and the speed advantages, he had the the mental advantage. And that's what Floyd showed you when he was money made with two different type of fighters, both great in their own. But at 130, he was special at 147 and 154. 
he was special in a different way. But at 130, physically, he was on a level that I've only seen three times since I started watching boxing in 77. And the combination of speed, power, and, and, and defense. That was Sugar Ray Leonard from 79 to, unfortunately, when they had the Dutch Retner in 82. Uh, Roy Jones Jr. from 1993 to 2000. And you know what? Only those two because I didn't I didn't see Ali. Ali's prime was before I was born. Ali was 64 to 67. But that's where I would compare Floyd from 1998 to 2001. He was just a special fighter. And for those who do want proof, check out his fights on YouTube against Diego Corrales, Angel Manfredi, and Gennaro Hernandez. He was on another level with these guys. And these guys were much taller than him. It didn't matter. He was on another level. He could do no wrong. I mean, physically and skill-wise and speed-wise, it was uh, it was like Kobe Bryant playing against a high school basketball team in his prime. So you go back and watch those fights, and... <laughs> Foreman is on is on I think both of them which is kind of funny in its own right the the what his the way that he analyzed boxing was was very interesting but um it, you know the the whole the in both fights the story is that Mayweather is giving up height and mm-hmm. is height and and reach advantage the way that you could slow this guy down and very clearly uh you know like one or two rounds in, you're like, no way. But still, because they're they're telling the narrative, you know, the the narrative is well, you know, we'll see, you know, we'll see. Uh, Corrales said it's going to take him a few. He's going to give away a few rounds here, and maybe when he warms up, you know, he just has to hit hit once, and it never, it literally never happened. It's and- not it's not going to happen because Diego Corrales was not your typical tall fighter. Diego Corrales and Gennaro Hernandez both 5 foot 11. Gennaro Hernandez was your typical tall fighter. Corrales wasn't. Corrales was a slugger who who turned out who was tall for his weight class at 130 and then later on at, at 135. And we, we'll be talking about Corrales next month in what I consider the second greatest fight in history of boxing against Jose Luis Castillo. Diego Corrales never, never went behind his jab. Never. He was looking to land that spectacular right hook of his. That's what he was looking. He was looking and looking and looking and looking and looking. And because he had great power. But he never was a boxer. He was a slugger who happened to be taller. Floyd knew this. Floyd knew this. And Floyd knew that he, the, the only way Corrales could beat him is if he if he went toe to toe with Corrales. That's not Floyd's game. Floyd was going to use his boxing ability, and they it, they would if they would have fought a hundred times, he would have got knocked out a hundred times because his skill set was nothing compared to Floyd's. I mean, Corrales was a very good fighter, but he could never deal with a guy like a Floyd Mayweather. It, no, it, no, no chance in hell. As far as Gennaro Hernandez is concerned, though, Garrett, Gennaro was a very good boxer who, for some inexplicable reason, in his fight with Floyd, abandoned the jab. If you're a guy with a good jab and you're three to four inches taller than Floyd and a significant uh, uh, reach advantage, you need to use that jab. He's looking to counter Floyd. 
Floyd is throwing, as you saw, six to eight punches combinations. And Gennaro could not time it because Floyd was too quick. And you cannot do that if you're not fighting behind the jab. <laughs> what George Foreman said in the Gennaro Hernandez fight, and you're right, he was a unique type of commentator. When you get past his uh, trying to put himself over, because in my <laughs> opinion, George was always trying to put himself over. You could see where he made sense in certain in, with 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 uh, when it came to strategy, and he was right. He said the best friend of a boxer is his jab. Gennaro never used that jab. So <clears throat> the one thing, and this is telling you know Floyd's early story, but to your point earlier in in sort of his style at this weight coming out of the Olympics. Uh, his, his pops is in jail, right? Yes. So, yes. so, so yes. His, his uncle is training him, but at some point, pops is back in the scene, and so pops takes over. And right, his, before, it, right before he fights Gennaro Hernandez, his father gets released from prison, and Roger and Jeff, his uncles, Roger, the, the main trainer, Jeff, uh, a second, step aside because they had, uh, they had promised Floyd Sr. that once he got out of prison, they would get out the way and Floyd could re- could resume training his son. And they had some success. But Floyd, for, and this is the brilliance of Floyd Mayweather, felt that he was missing something in his fight coming up against Diego Corrales. Right. And fired Senior and rehired Roger because, and rest in peace, Roger Mayweather, he died early there. Floyd's had a horrendous 2020 with the mother of his children dying uh, his uncle dying, and now his daughter got arrested for assault with a with, with a deadly weapon last Oof. week. So <laughs> he, he's having a horrendous 2020. But uh, uh, he hired Roger because he wanted to be more offensive minded than defensive minded in his fight with Diego Corrales. Now, in a perfect world, those two should have been his co-trainers. But there was a clash of egos, and you saw in the 24-7s, in many of his 24-7s, that there was some there was a clash of egos between Roger and Floyd Sr., and the two could not coexist trying to co-train Floyd. And Floyd knew this, so he always had one or the other as his main trainer. From that moment on until Roger got sick seven years ago, uh, Roger was his trainer for the bulk of those 12 years and did a phenomenal job. It, but in the fight with Corrales, Floyd Sr. is uh, he's near the ring because you can yeah. hear him offering some suggestions. I mean, not like he needed to say anything like Floyd is just you know easily winning this fight. But you could see Floyd looking, agreeing, going, OK, OK. And he like he, he it's not like, you know, there, there was no disrespect or anything. No, it was, it was, no, it, no, it was no you know, Pops right. is it has a valid point. I want to make sure he knows that I'm listening and we're, we're doing work and, 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 you know, and that, that was a deal. I thought that was really interesting because knowing their history and knowing the ins and outs with, with both of them as trainers, Floyd was always going to be, you know, respectful in that way to, to his father's, uh, you know, boxing defensive prowess and knowledge. Right. And that was, that was the best thing that a uh, senior brought to the table was, was the defense. Now you notice, uh, Garrett, Another huge difference between the Floyd of 130 and the Floyd of 147 slash 154, less shoulder rolls at 130. 130, he's he's doing a lot of the Ali Sugar Ray Leonard uh, 
with uh, uh, rocking the head back. You don't see the shoulder roll. It's too fast. He didn't need it. He was so fast. He didn't fast. need it when he was at 147, 154 because he had lost an inch, a step, more of the shoulder rolls, and that's where Floyd Sr. was needed because Floyd Sr. used that shoulder roll as as throughout his professional career Did, didn't help him a lot but then it was a good it was a good it was a good because he, <laughs> he 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 was a stiff oh my god i call like i said he was a jobber to the stars at at, at welterweight but uh you don't see any shoulder rolls at 130 he's like ali and leonard and roy jones in their primes he would you know dodge punches dodge punches which which was amazing because it was his speed. And when it comes to all-time speed, he's on that Roy Jones, Sugar Ray Leonard, Muhammad Ali, Hector Camacho at 130 level of speed that it's really, really. Meldrick Taylor, we mentioned him last month in his prime. Oh, yeah. Before that type of speed, Pernell Whitaker, that type of speed, which with, with, the, with, with the way he fought and, and as offensive-minded as, as he was, was was unstoppable, and at 130, he is the greatest 130 pound fighter of all time. I love Alexis Arguello. You're a huge fan of Alexis Arguello. Arguello is probably the only fighter in the history of the division. If you put them two in their prime, that's got a shot because Arguello won't stop throwing a jab. Arguello's five foot ten. He's taller than Mayweather, but the reason Mayweather beats Arguello is if you see the losses in Arguello's career through his prime. He lost to a light-hitting Villamar Fernandez who moved the entire fight in Arguello's prime, 10-round non-title fight in New York City. And that's Arguello in his prime. Arguello wins that fight, Garrett. He's guaranteed a fight with Roberto Duran. So he had it. It wasn't like he took him lightly. He had to win that fight, and he lost. He lost, and he lost decisively because Villamar stayed outside, and he used his speed, and Villamar's a much shorter fighter then Villamar's only 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, Floyd's 5'8". And you saw what happened when Arguello fought Aaron Pryor and when Pryor decided to box and use his speed, Arguello just couldn't just couldn't stop him. And Floyd was a better better natural boxer than Pryor. So, and so they, that's why Mayweather beats Arguello. I don't think he knocks out Arguello, but I think he wins a decisive 12-round decision if you put them two together. But if you look at both of their career at 130, they both had very similar title reigns. Both held the title for three years. Neither one came close to losing their titles. They dominated the division, and they beat every significant contender in that division throughout their three years. That's why those two are at the top of my list as the greatest 130-pound fighters of all time. And when we go through all the lists that I've done for you so far, uh, middleweight, super super welterweight, welterweight, super lightweight, lightweight, and now super featherweight, I've done six divisions. If you look at the top two of each division, they're comparable to each other as far as all-time greats. At 160, Carlos Monzon and Marvin Hagler, two of the greatest fighters of all time. 154, Thomas Hearns and Mike McCollum, two of the greatest fighters of all time. 147, Sugar Ray Robinson and Henry Armstrong, in my opinion, two of the three greatest fighters of all time. 140, Aaron Pryor and Costa Zoo. Costa Zoo probably, no, definitely the worst out of all these fighters I'm talking about. And Costa Zoo was a beast. 
that shows you if Casa is the worst of these twelve <laughs> fighters, how great these fighters are. And now at one at at uh, one thirty, Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Alexis Arguello. So before we get to at your all, at the top of a just, yeah, go ahead. So before we get to your top ten greatest fighters of all time, um, what what is the next division that you're going to rank? We're going to be talking about the featherweight division, the featherweights. And um, I started working on the first article, and this guy fought before 1900. All right, wow. and I'm not going. Yeah, so this will be a history lesson for uh, for 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 all uh, boxing fans out there that follow my articles and follow. Garrett's Fight Game Media website. Um, so there's one fighter pre-1900, and the other four fighters, uh, two were, produ- were, were were dominant in the 1980s, and two were dominant in the 1940s and 1950s. So there you go. Now, if you look at the rundown of the junior lightweights, real quickly, I'll, I'll run them down, a huge international flavor. Floyd in the top five. Is number one a junior ju- junior lightweight super featherweights? He's the only American. Number five was G- Gabriel Flachelotti, the first Filipino superstar fighter, uh, considered the greatest until Manny came on the scene and destroyed destroyed that. Uh, number four, Brian Mitchell, the greatest South African fighter of all time, and crazy, he was a white African fighter, and he's the greatest South African fighter of all time. Number three, Azuma Nelson, the greatest African fighter of all time. Just a tremendous boxer puncher, the professor. Uh, uh, Alexis Arguello, number two, the greatest fighter ever to come out of Nicaragua. And in my opinion, the second greatest Latin fighter of all time after Roberto Duran. And number one, Floyd Mayweather. So you see a, a, a huge international flavor. When it comes to the featherweights, you'll have a Panamanian, you'll have a Mexican, Two Americans and a Canadian will will uh, fill out my top five without naming any names. All right. So, how do you want to do this countdown of your? Is this a revised list? Have you made any changes in the last uh, since I, the last uh, time you did it? The last time I did it was a couple of years ago, right? And um, the most uh, several of these guys are still on the list, so I'll go from ten to one. All right. All right. Number ten. Number ten. The recently departed, less than a year ago. Uh, Pernell Sweet P. Whitaker, the second greatest lightweight of all time. He's my number 10. It's tough to make this list because I'm, I'm going to name you these 10 and then you can make an argument for like 50 other fighters. Absolutely. <laughs> number nine, Floyd Mayweather. First time. I had been saying for years that maybe he's in my top 15, more likely top 20. But after revisiting what he did at junior lightweight and realizing that it is very hard, Garrett, to be the greatest fighter in the history of your division, never mind making the top 10, that that alone should allow you a chance to reach the top 10. It's the greatest fighter at 130, and then you you uh, factor in what he did at 135, 140, 147, and 154, and all the great fighters he beat, and the fact that he schooled Canelo Alvarez, and I don't want to hear the excuse, oh, he, 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 <laughs> He was in his prime, all right? He beat this guy. He, he beat him easily. He, uh, Howard just saw it even. I don't know what the fuck he was looking at. But he easily beat Canelo. But to Canelo's trip, uh, credit, he's become a better fighter by losing to Floyd. Great fighters learn from their mistakes and learn from their losses. 
Canelo with his loss to, to Mayweather and his controversial draw to, uh, to Triple G a few years ago has become a greater fighter since those fights. Those what great those are what great fighters do. Uh, so Floyd, because Wait, I, I've one I've one question for you. Yeah. Okay. How much money would it take to get Floyd out of retirement to face Canelo? Three hundred million. He'd get knocked out though. He's he would be forty four when they fight. It doesn't make no sense. Three three hundred though. If if they if they if they find a way I don't, I don't, to I don't find him three hundred million. Floyd's not Floyd's not taking that fight. <laughs> I don't think there's enough money in Fort Knox for him to take that fight. Yeah, I was just I was just wondering if there is he a price. Loves, he loves that fifty and no record. He loves that zero, that undefeated record, more than he loves pussy. And we all know how much he loves pussy. More than he loves cars. More than he loves money. That means more to him than ever than all the gold in Fort Knox. He's not fighting Canelo. He will. He'll fight Manny again. He'll 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 fight uh um mid range welterweight or or junior middleweight super welterweight. He's not fighting Canelo. No, it's it's not happening. Shit. He'll fight Triple G before he fights Canelo. <laughs> all right. Who's uh, number eight? Okay, all right. My 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 number eight fighter is Aaron Pryor, the greatest junior welterweight of all time. And as Garrett has said, and Garrett and Duan, uh, throughout their series, their Fab Four series, always brought up Aaron Pryor. I mean, both of them huge fans of Aaron Pryor. Aaron Pryor, as you mentioned when we talked about Aaron Pryor on your last podcast, the most underappreciated legendary fighter of all time, the most underrated great fight of all time he was he was unstoppable in his prime uh, and you know Garrett from doing the Fab Four a lot of fighters ducked him a lot of fighters ducked him nobody at lightweight would fight him he moved up to junior welterweight in order to get a title shot and I would have while Sugar Ray Leonard would have beaten Aaron Pryor it wouldn't have been easy and, been you a, know the, the thing is is that Pry- Pryor's name wasn't marquee enough for the for the risk for those guys. Yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. He would have beaten Duran. Duran, no, Duran fought certain fighters. He took the risk if it was a financial reward. That's why he fought Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas Hearns, and Marvin Hagler. Because even though they're better fighters than him at that time, there's a huge financial reward. Aaron Pryor, he would have got peanuts compared to those guys and would have been put in the hospital. Yep. All right, number seven. Number seven is the most perfect fighter I've ever seen in my entire lifetime. He would have been higher had he not continued to fight up until a couple of years ago. He fought 13 years too long. If He should have retired after Antonio Tarver knocked him out. And that's Roy Jones Jr. From 1993 to 2000, he was the single most, most perfect fighter myself or my father ever saw. He was the closest thing to unbeatable I have ever seen. The perfect combination of speed, power, defense. I mean, he put the fear of God in his opponents. He could beat you moving, using his jab, or he could just come at you and obliterate you. The fastest fighter I've ever seen, the closest thing to perfection, Roy Jones Jr. You I know, mean, you know that Stallone 
had written the Rocky yes. Balboa movie for yes. Roy Jones to be in it, and Roy Jones would not return his call, so that's why Mason Love the Line Dick Dixon it, was Antonio Tarver. And it's funny that it's funny to talk about uh, things happening in reverse. Roy Jones Jr. moved up to heavyweight, beat John Ruiz, moved back down to light heavyweight, struggled with Tarver the first time, got knocked out the second time. Tony, he turns down the Rocky movie. Antonio Tarver, the guy who beat him twice, the guy who beat Jones twice, gets the role and puts on a bunch of muscle, does the movie, comes back down to fight Bernard Hopkins and gets obliterated and was never the same. Yep, yep. That, you know, that they, they talked about that, about he had to put on weight to look big enough to be imposing in that movie. He put on forty to fifty pounds. It was, but He's a lot a, he, of it was fat too. It wasn't just muscle. He he bulked up in maybe not the best way, but maybe you know maybe it was a little bit more cleaner than some people bulk up. But yeah, because he he was it wasn't all muscle. There was definitely fat yeah, there in that movie. Because yeah, he's at one seventy five when he fights, and in the in I believe he was two fifteen, two twenty when he fought uh in, in when, when he uh, took the role and played Mason. All right, number six. All right, hold on. Let me adjust my microphone. All right, here we go. Number six. Mention him with a common common name throughout your uh, website with the Fab Four, and he was an incredible fighter, the 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 best fighter of the eighties. Sugar Ray Leonard. And Sugar mm. Ray Leonard. Sugar Ray Leonard fought everybody, and he had been higher had the detached retina that happened. Remember, people forget. He was 25 years old when he had that detached retina. Like Ali was 25 years old when he got stripped of the heavyweight title and put into forced exile because of his stance on the Vietnam War. These two were robbed of their prime. He didn't uh, discount the Kevin Howard fight because he didn't train and he had no business fighting that fight. He didn't fight a significant fight for five years until he beat Marvin Hagler at the age of 30. So... He he would have been much higher than six. He he would have been number three or number four on my list had he not lost those years. But he beat Hagler. He beat he he, he beat Hearns in the in the first fight in an incredible come from behind victory. He made Durant quit when they're both in their prime. I the, the, the just an incredible. He beat a prime Wilfredo Benitez in a tremendous fight. He he beat Benitez and. He thoroughly beat Benitez, knocking him out in the fifteenth round. Uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, my number six. Do you have you ever read Leonard's book? No, no, I've been meaning to get it, but no, I never read it. It's it's pretty good. Um, he is, I don't know, maybe he's a little too honest because he's not a good dude throughout. Oh throughout no, this book. Oh no, he he. he um, I know, and I, and I heard he brought up in his book he beat his wife, and he was he was a he, he was a cokehead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right, number five. Number five, the greatest uh, fighter ever to come out of Alabama. Uh, at one point, many consider him the greatest fighter of all time. Uh, one of the greatest punches in heavyweight history, the Brown Bomber, Joe Lewis. He held the heavyweight championship of the world for 12 years. He beat everybody from that point on. F- from 1930, he beat. He beat, he beat Max Schmeling in the fight of the century. 
in the first round. Same guy that knocked him out in 12 a couple years earlier. He knocks him out in the very first round. Joe Lewis, number five. Uh, and the impact. Yeah, and the only American boxer. You've had other countries. Other fighters from other countries have stadiums and arenas named after him. He's the only boxer in the United States to have an arena, a major arena, mm-hmm. named after him in the Joe Louis Arena. You don't have the Muhammad Ali Arena. You don't have the Sugar Ray Leonard Arena. But you have the Joe Louis Arena. And uh, kudos to all the, to the teams that play in the Joe Louis Arena, uh, the Pistons and the Red Wings, and the owners uh, of, of that uh, arena for not changing the name through, through corporate sponsorship to, to honor the great Joe Louis. All right, number four. Number four is the greatest Hispanic Latin fighter of all time, the greatest fighter ever come out of Panama, the greatest lightweight of all time, and that's Manos de Piedra, the hands of stone, Roberto Duran. And his, his accolades are numerous, endless. At lightweight, he was the most fiercest fighter I ever saw. He was phenomenal. He was relentless. And as you saw, as you covered his first fight with Sugar Ray Leonard, he came at Leonard and he was not to be denied that night as he forced Leonard into a firefight and outpunched the man who many thought was the best fighter in the world at that time. Durant outpunched, outhustled, and beat him. Did you see that documentary? Uh, the 30 for 30 No Mas? No, the recent one that was on. It was like, oh, maybe like a year ago, a year and a half I, ago or something. I, I haven't had a chance to watch it. You, you, you like it. You, you, you I, like I thought. It. I thought it was good. It, I mean, there yeah. wasn't a, um, there wasn't this overarching theme or message that you know inspired you in any way. Uh, but I, I did. I did think it was good. And and uh, I think that was the documentary that talked about how, in that Leonard fight, he would kind of throw a fake punch, like a fake left hand, just to get Sugar Ray to change stances. And right as he's like throwing this like really soft fake punch, he would immediately throw a punch with the other hand, which is the the, the punch that he actually wanted to throw. And so when you rewatch that part of the of, of the fight, you're like, oh wow! Like I didn't realize that strategy wow. in the fight. So it was wow. actually I did learn that. But yeah, so it's, he good. Fa- it's good. It's good. He faded with his left hand and he threw and he threw a hum a hum uh a humongous amount of body punches in that fight. I mean that you 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 want to. You want a textbook on body punching? Sugar Ray Leonard's first fight with Duran, with Duran just went to his rib cage the entire night. Even when they went inside and Leonard was holding him, he didn't stop throwing body punches. Uh, Roberto Duran, the greatest body puncher I've ever seen. Uh, the greatest, uh, just, just, he, there's so many greats. He's at number four. And you know how, how great you have to be, Garrett, to have quit in a major fight and still. <laughs> And still be the fourth greatest fighter of all time. And he's my number four. Number right. three, number three is my second greatest welterweight of all time. The only man in the history of boxing. And it can be done today. Canelo can actually do this. But you know what? It wouldn't count because you have the WBA, the WBC, the IBF, the ABC, the XYZ, the IBA, the FBI, who the fuck cares? <laughs> but when Henry Armstrong held three world titles at the same time, there was only one world championship per division. He was the feather, and there was no junior, te- junior, junior 
lightweight junior. There was no junior titles. They were all full-fledged titles. At one point in time, he was the featherweight, 126 pounds, lightweight, 135 pounds, and welterweight, 147 pounds. He was a three-time division champion at the same time, spanning 21 pounds. He held three titles at the same time. That's unreal. That's unreal. There was only one title in each division. Unreal. The 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 the, the third greatest fighter in the history of boxing. How hard is that to do? One twenty six to one forty seven. And Henry Armstrong, he was a windmill, very similar to Aaron Pryor. He come at you. He wouldn't stop throwing punches. So, yeah, you're knocking out featherweights, but then you have to fight guys twenty pounds heavier. You at, at welterweight and funny the heaviest division. He defended the title 19 times success, successfully. Unreal. Henry Armstrong, number three. All right, the top two. All right, number two is the self-proclaimed greatest of all time, uh, my father's favorite fighter, my favorite athlete of all time just in terms of his charisma, his, it, 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 of, of his accomplishments on and off, on and outside the ring. Inside the ring and outside the ring, and that is Muhammad Ali. Just, I don't have to go further. Anybody that knows anything about boxing knows his story. He's number two. Wow, someone beat Ali, and who is that person? The man who Ali uh, idolized, the man who he shaped his boxing style after, and that is the immortal Sugar Ray Robinson. You have to, I mean, you know, when when the people who came after him said that he's the best and he's the one that they wanted to emulate, like it kind of starts there. And Sugar Ray Leonard always says on his Twitter feed, people will tweet him, oh, you're the greatest of all time. And he'll go, well, the greatest of all time has my name, but a different last name. (laughs) (laughs) Sugar Ray Leonard was very influential in Ali style, but Sugar I mean Sugar Ray Robinson, he was the Roy Jones Jr. of his era. He was what those guys back then would say was a perfect fighter. What's messed up is he was the greatest welterweight of all time, as I wrote in my columns. But we're going on what I'm going on what I read. The experts go on what they've read. Because there's no footage of him as the welterweight champion of the world. Just clips. Clips here, clips there, but no full fights. He fought fights with Henry Armstrong and Kid Gavilon, two of the f- other members of the five greatest welterweights of all time. There's no footage of those fights. I would have loved to seen how he was able to master these master boxers and convincingly beat them. Jake Lamont, he fought Jake Lamont six times. The first five fights, there's a round here, round there, but no complete, no complete fight. Not until the sixth time, and that's at middleweight. He was the greatest welterweight of all time, and in my opinion, the third greatest middleweight of all time. And he beat so many great fighters. It's and he was the perfect fighter. I mean, Sugar Ray, he was sweet the way he moved. He was the first dancer that could punch the way he punched. All right, so um, the next time we chat, 
is going to be uh, another f- anniversary, much like we did with the yeah. Chavez and, and Taylor fight. And that is going to be next month. So we're going to bring you back next month to talk about that fight. And hopefully there will be other stuff to talk about, too, because you, you can't you just did your top 10 list. I don't know where we can go from there. Well, I'm, I'm going to do the uh, in between now and May 7th, May 7th, May 7th, 2005 was the second greatest fight I ever saw. And it ironically happened on my birthday because my birthday is May 7th. And that that night I'm moving that night. I'm moving from one apartment to another. I'm moving from the Bronx to Harlem. And well, the last thing I did was remove my cable box and I wanted to see this fight. So I'm in an empty apartment watching this fight. And we'll, we'll, I'll go more into detail. We talk about it a month from now. But that's May 7th, 2005. The first fight between Diego Corrales and Jose Luis Castillo in a fight. I mean, it is a perfect fight. You want action. It's a perfect fight. There's no lows in this fight. There's no holding it. There's no holding it. Hitting it, hitting it nonstop action from the minute the opening bell ends to the ending in the 10th round. And that 10th round was one of the most incredible rounds in boxing history. You could say that that round was better than the first round of Hagler Hurts. That's how great this round was. We'll go into that. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, we, maybe I could. Yeah, yeah, great fight. But I'll be doing the featherweights, what I mentioned earlier. I'll be writing up the featherweights my next uh, five uh, with all the time I have, I'll definitely have this done by, 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 by then. So I may, so I may come back again just to talk about my top two featherweights, and that that would be pretty interesting because my top two featherweights. Here's another hint for you fans out there: you might be able to uh, decipher this. The, uh, the two guys that I'm writing about that'll be that are, that are my ones and two, that are my number one, number two, fought each other four times. Wow! So that would be that would be a that that would be a nice discussion. Another podcast we'll do, but definitely that Corrales Castillo one fight. That that'll be uh, a, a tremendous show that we'll be talking about. And uh, when you, once you see the fight, Garrett, you're gonna want to watch it again and again. <laughs> again. Absolutely. And again. A, well, when's the last time you saw the fight? Uh, I I can't even remember. So it's, right. it's coming up on the fifteenth year, yeah. It's it's yeah. probably I probably have. I mean, I've seen obviously clips of it, and you see stuff on Twitter about it and stuff. Right. But all the way through from from soup to nuts, yeah, probably not. You know, not in all over right, ten years, get, probably. Yeah, you'll you'll you're gonna re as soon as you finish watching it, you got wait. I, I gotta watch this again because I might have missed something. <laughs> <laughs> no, that'll be fun, man. So uh, so I want to. Thank Robert for uh, for hanging in. And Robert, what, give give the people your your Twitter again. We need to get your Twitter followers up because they're missing some great stuff. Okay, uh, uh, Robert Silva S I L V as in Victor A five seven six eight. That's at Robert Silva S I L V as in Victor A five seven six eight. All right, man. Thanks for joining and uh, and uh, get get back to John and I to finish off uh, this week's show. How about this? What is that? This happens to be the real championship belt. That's not Hogan's belt, Brain. I know the champ's belt when I see it. You're right. Comparing this belt to Hulk Hogan's belt would be like comparing ice cream to horse manure. Comparing the men that wear these belts would also be like comparing ice cream to horse manure. 
You see, the man that owns this belt is right now under contract to another organization. But in the very near future, he might be coming to the World Wrestling Federation. The man is also a very long, dear, personal friend of mine. Does the guy have a name? Yes, he has a name. This man not only has challenged Hogan on numerous occasions, unanswered, may I add, but you want to compare him, fine. Then let's compare Hulk Hogan to Ric Flair. All right, we're back to do the final segment of the show. This is our first We Want Flair for Ric Flair, Randy Savage, which is essentially the telling of the story of Ric Flair coming to WWF in 1991. If you heard the two We Want Flares that we did in um, January and February with the Tatsumi Fujinami matches, we told that whole story of Flair getting super frustrated with Jim Hurd, with WCW, with Dusty, and that leads us here. So if you haven't heard those two, I would say, you know, give those two a shot. They're they're up on YouTube, on our YouTube uh, channel at Fight Game Media. And it really leads us into this this time frame. So, I you know this moment is I would say as a kid. So I am fifteen. I am so religiously watching wrestling that it's probably ridiculous. Like my parents probably were like, "What the hell is going on?" And a part of it is because I was getting the inside juice that we talked about from. Dynamite D from Slammers Wrestling, and also because I was invested with uh, both companies, and you know, I was watch, I was trying to watch as much TV as possible, and the TV that I was gone for, I was taping on on video, and you know, think about that, right? Like taping an hour of superstars of, of wrestling, or the WCW Power Hour, or Worldwide, like you know that 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 was just kind of like appointment viewing TV for us, so. As far as I'm concerned, this is probably the time where I spent the most part of my life watching weekly wrestling. What about you? Oh, same. I was watching everything, anything, any other syndication stuff, um, their main stuff. And uh, this is unbelievable what was happening. I remember I remember where I was at. I was in my, we had an office room with a TV in it. And that was our little room where the kids can go and watch TV. And that's usually me. <laughs> at the time and i remember it was uh it was sunday it was a wrestling challenge and i you know i, I clicked on the to watch and there's bobby heenan with the the world championship wcw world championship or the nba world championship the rick flair's big gold belt and i was like what the hell i couldn't believe it like i was shocked like i think i was just stunned all day and so I was all in, like, I can't wait to see what's coming up next. I had to watch everything. And so, um, I will never forget that day. And it was just like a, a quick, like, okay, I'm gonna watch, you know, wrestling challenge right now, turn it on, click TV. And, and I could not believe what I saw. It was one of those things where, you know, we were also both pro wrestling illustrated kids and you would all, you know, you'd always talk about dream matchups. They would even have dream matchup tournaments in pro PWI. And this was always, the, you know, the one, you know, Hogan Flair, Hogan Flair, going all the way back to like the, you know, the mid 80s, it was always Hogan Flair, Hogan Flair. And we finally had the opportunity to get there. So I'm going to go through 
all of the uh, all of the information of how he actually got there, got to WWF, and and what happened and why. And as I talk through this stuff, I want you to chime in on the things that uh, you you remember or you know that are as, as I'm rekindling these memories for you. So, um, we're we're going to August of uh, 1991. So he has not signed with WWF yet. He has left. WCW, he was fired uh, July. Uh, you know, we, we talked about the Great American Bash with Lex Luger and Barry Windham on on uh, the February We Want Flair. So, you know, fast forward a little bit. And uh, good old JR is the one who's got speculation on his 900 number hotline about what's next for Flair. So the early speculation in August of 91 was that he may show up at SummerSlam. And if you remember, that was the show where Hogan and Warrior tag-teamed with Sid Justice as the referee, the match made in heaven and the match made in hell. There was a rumor that Flair was going to show up there with the championship belt and challenge Hogan. Ross reported it, said, you know, just made sure that, you know, this is just speculation, but this is what I've heard. Um, so he's still under uh, the the one caveat or the one thing that, you know, why this couldn't happen is that he was under contract with WCW until uh, September. So if he would have showed up on that show, he would have had to get out of his contract in some way. And, you know, probably WCW is not really going to help WWE uh, at this point. So the consensus at the time is that if Flair were to go to Titan or to WWF, recognized as the NWA champion, that his match with Hogan would be just this box office extravaganza. And you got to remember, like, wrestling in 91, you know, when you're coming off of years like, uh, especially for WWF, like 88, 89, even 90, you know, business is, is pretty good, but it's kind of going down in 91. It would get really bad in, in 92 and 93, you know, really bad. But, uh, you know, so a pick-me-up of, of any sort in 91 is, is sort of really, really good. And you got to remember also Hogan was gone for a lot of the time. I think he was filming, uh, was it, so he's at, at the uh, summer of 90, he's filming Suburban Commando, right? I believe so. Yeah. Or Mr. Nanny. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Nanny might have been the one after that. So, you know, he from um, I think it's from WrestleMania 91 with Slaughter. He takes uh, a little bit of time away, even though he's the champion. And um, or maybe it's after SummerSlam. There was a time period, I think, after SummerSlam where he's like not working very much because he's doing other stuff. So. Uh, this is leading into this time period. So, uh, but the but the other belief is that if Flair was just to go and be another WWF guy, then it wouldn't be that big of a deal. It was really like the belt that would have catapulted uh, the business, and and so that that was a big part of it. Which was Flair comes with the NWA belt that really means something, and if he just comes in as another guy, it probably is not going to mean as much. Yeah, for sure. I mean that the the belt is what grabbed your attention right away i'm surprised i was thinking you know now you brought up summerslam 91 maybe flair couldn't be there and i'm trying to remember this i mean summerslam 91 i i only remember a few things i remember um what was the best match was it was 
Bret Hart match perfect, right? That was yeah. like the best match. Um, I remember Warrior leaving in that middle of that tag match main event, and Hogan alone beat up Slaughter, Mustafa, you know, and, and Mustafa, um, Iron Sheik at the time. Well, or he was Colonel Mustafa at the time, but you know the former Iron Sheik. What if they would have just had? I don't know who was doing play to play. I don't. I don't know if Bobby Heenan was doing play to play then. But what if he wasn't? And as Hogan's doing his whole pose down, some music hits. You're like, what the heck is that? Interrupts Hogan, and out comes Bobby Heenan with the belt. Mm-hmm. Gets in the ring, and then tells him, then you know the real world champion is coming. Rick, you know, Rick Flair is coming, or something like that. Or maybe they couldn't say, maybe you couldn't say Rick Flair, but maybe you just say the real world champion is coming. And everyone that would have been knows. awesome. I, cause I always like, you know, I mean, back then I was in shock, right? When I saw him wrestling challenge, but I always like would look back in hindsight, like, yeah, I mean, his debut wasn't as amazing as I think people were probably remember. Right. I thought it was kind of like kind of flat. I mean, even, even though we'll probably talk about his first appearance on television, I remember it was kind of like a, a weird feeling to where the setting was and, and and it just didn't seem right at the time. Maybe because it's just Ric Flair on WWE television for me, but it just didn't. I remember at the time it wasn't. Looking back when I watched that footage again, it didn't feel as like man, they, they could have done a lot better job with this. So the um, to to your point, I think you know if you're Vince and you've been spending all of this time as the number one promotion and never talking about the other promotion, I'm sure that crossed his mind too, right? Like, do we want to give credibility to these other guys and would it actually help their business if we talk about this thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why he, that's why he did it with the angle of being flair as a fake world champion, right? Like that's what monsoon would always just call it bogus. And he'd always, you know, Monsoon was the voice of WWF. Uh, he's just as ridiculous. He's bogus and this and that. And then they would censor the belt. Remember, he had to carry the tag title around. Um, it was just, uh, it was just. I think they was never, they never said the words NWA. You know, only Bobby Heenan and Ric Flair said the real world and Mr. Perfect, I guess, would said the the real world champion. Everyone else was call, was calling false. Yeah. So the the show that I mentioned, I've, I've mentioned this before, kind of the impetus for me even like wanting to do this show was um, in, uh, in the last week of July, I went to a show at the Oakland, uh, back then it was called the Oakland Coliseum. Today, it's, it's actually going to be shut down, but people would, would know it more as, uh, actually not shut down, I think they're using it for other stuff, but people would know it more as Oracle, where the Warriors you know, won their championships. So they would run, WCW would usually run the Kaiser Arena, which is a smaller building, and then WWF would run the Oakland uh, Coliseum Arena, or whatever they, would, whatever they called it back then. And this time, WCW ran the big arena in, in Oakland next to the next to the Alameda County Coliseum. And so that's the show that I would have gone to, which was originally supposed to be Flair and Luger uh, and it went and became uh, Luger against uh, beautiful Bobby Eaton. And that's the show where like the whole night, like everyone was just chanting, we want Flair like the whole night. So Dave says they the house was thirty eight hundred people. And so that building conceit like you know i don't know eighteen thousand or something like that so three you know less than four thousand were there it felt even smaller from from my memory but that would have been the show and wwe ran the cow palace up against this show 
So uh, in uh, middle of August, uh, more information is coming out about what's going to happen with Rick. So WCW learns, and, and how did they not see this thing coming? They all of a sudden go, wow, like if Rick may go to WWF, and so they try a last-ditch effort, and they offer him the book, which is so weird to me because they had just brought Dusty back mm-hmm. to to you know to book. So can you imagine the headaches there? I guess you you would have to say sayonara to Dusty, right? Like like what would happen? Well, it's funny because he stopped booking WWE because he couldn't handle Jim Curd's BS. So if Jim Curd's Jim Hurd's still there, like. Why would they think that would be something that would put it over the top to make him like want to come back? Like, no way. You know, I think he was just done. He was done with WCW at this point. He was ready to go and prove himself again in New York and for Vince and show WCW up. And, you know, he did a great job at that. And, 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 and when it came to, you know, his matches and stuff, but as being a valuable player, but. Yeah, that's it's so funny that you know now they want him back. It's just what a what a slap in the face. No way he was coming back. I don't think unless they gave him like maybe like a half a million dollars or something like that. Or something. well, it, we're we're gonna get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, in August, the the tease, the Bobby Heenan teases start happening. Uh, Big Dave reports that the speculation at that time was that Flair and Hogan would work a major house show run in the fall rather than hold off the program until WrestleMania the following year. That's actually exactly what happened. Um, And so later in August, the um, one of the PR guys told uh, a Detroit newspaper that the first Hogan Flair confrontation would be on Survivor Series uh, on uh, in in Detroit. So that was like that was actually told to a newspaper by a PR guy. So you could see like things were not concrete as far as what they wanted to do with these guys. So um, Dave also reports that other people in Titan that's what he calls WWF like forever until probably I don't know. The, the, once we got to the 2000s, he should have called them Titan, um, would have indicated that Flair and Hogan would start their house show run as early as October 18th, with the first matches being in California. But based on TV ratings, it appears Flair will work with Roddy Piper for the time being. I'm sorry, not TV ratings, TV tapings. Work with Roddy Piper um, but that's probably until Hogan returns from doing the movie, which I'm assuming is is the Mr. Nanny movie. So uh, there was a there was a TV taping in Rochester. Hogan does an interview talking about Flair, and then Heenan did an interview with Flair's title, which wound up with Roddy Piper doing a run in, and this gets Piper out of uh, his short retirement because he wants to work with Flair to get Flair ready for the Hogan stuff. And uh, it sounds like, um, you know, it sounds like just that the plans are changing. Like they're trying to decide whether do they do the Hogan Flair stuff at this time to, you know, rejuvenate the house show business or do they try and hold it off until WrestleMania? And today, in the way that wrestling works today, you would hold it off for that big match. But WrestleMania back then wasn't sort of what it was. Like they didn't really hold off stuff because the house show business was so much more a big part of their 
their annual uh, revenue. And so, you know, to, to, to them, like this was the, the way to go was to go to the house show run because you could do so many houses in a row, you know, you can run it back several times and, and it could draw, 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 draw. Whereas WrestleMania was just one show that, that you would do that with. Yeah. And then, um, you know, 91 wrestling United States was down. Business was down, you know, for both sides, WCW and WWF. So, you know, them, them making the call for Flair Hogan on the house show, even though a lot of people are always confused about that, like for a business standpoint, that was the best decision they could make at the time because they you know, they needed to get increases those houses and what what what's going to increase those houses the first time around is you know being uh, Hogan and Flair. And so Ric Flair officially signs in early September. Dave speculates that his Nature Boy nickname would instead uh, be changed to the Champ. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Contract is believed to be a two-year deal, but no financial guarantees other than the standard guarantee of income from television appearances. So this is so interesting to me because you think about how free agency works today, right? And and maybe to Vince McMahon's thing, he's like, well, you know, Rick really doesn't have anywhere to go. He can go back to WCW, but they screwed him. Where is he going to go? There's no other place to go. Is he going to go... Japan, he could have gone. Then yeah, he could have well. gone. He could could have gone to Japan, but um, you know, it's not like he was going to go to the Indies and and do mm-hmm. stuff. So uh, it it, de- it definitely seems like Vince had the leverage here, and and he also understood Rick really wanted to stick it to WCW, so that takes a little bit of leverage away from Rick too. Um, and and what you said earlier as well is just this willingness to want to prove himself. Yeah. Yeah, he's that's one thing I admire about Ric Flair. Like he he and you know, he always wanted to be the best. And when his value was questioned, you know, it motivated him. So I, I always took that as uh I always respected Flair for that. He always seemed motivated to to be the best as best as he can, even you know, even when he got older and he had had to take a couple extra shortcuts here and there. But I mean, he still, God, he he still had that mentality like I need to work and I need to be the best out there and I, you know, I need to put on a one hundred ten percent performance. Even though you know he you know he was like what fifty or you know he's out there, shoot, he's out there trying to hang with Orton and, and Batista's mm-hmm. young kids and partaking in some extra curricular activities to get some muscle himself, you know, cause, but he just, you know, he's, he's a wrestler and he, and he wants to prove his value to the company. And so I always admired him for that. You know, he's just, just, uh, uh, that drive to be the best. So in Rick's own book, here's how he explains signing with uh, Vince McMahon. He says, I went up to the World Wrestling Federation's office in Stamford, Connecticut, to meet Vince one-on-one. We talked money, and I told him what I'd been earning in WCW. Vince said, I don't give contracts, but I'll shake your hand and tell you that you'll make more, you know, you'll make the same with me or more. He had another guarantee, that if I was ever used as anything but a headliner, I would be free to seek employment elsewhere, even WCW. There was one obstacle in the way, and I told Vince about it. Heard had finally broken through to me, and WCW wanted a final meeting. I felt that I owed it to myself to at least hear their other offer. Then I get right back to Vince. We shook hands, and Vince looked me in the eye. Is your word good? Yes, it is. When I shake your hand, Rick, I'm taking you at your word, and you're taking me at mine. 
Rick says, finally a professional. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I got downstairs, I called Arn and said, I think I'm going to go with Vince. And he goes on to say that Arn is super frustrated because he just had got, he just had come <laughs> back to WCW himself. Yeah. So there were, uh, Dave reports that, uh, that WCW took one last ditch effort to re-sign Flair. He was going to come back as a baby face and oppose Lex and have a hand in the booking, but not be the booker. And, uh, and it, it, you know, he, but they, they wouldn't meet because I'm, I'm assuming that was after. I'm guessing Rick. that just means creative control. Somewhat, somewhat sure. of creative control. Sure. Things, yeah. Sure. And, um, and, and I'm assuming this was after Rick had already shaken with Vince. But according to Rick in the book, he said three years for 2.4 million was oh. the, the offer that he never got back to mm, WCW about. I don't know. Yeah, that was that's pretty high for that's pretty that, high. That's pretty yeah. high. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they it was Ted Turner, so you know, you could you could imagine that uh, that may, that maybe you know Turner's gonna. What if it was Ted that talked to Rick the final time? Would he would have better signed? heard? That's what I'm saying. Like, I think that's who they needed to, the to get to. They really wanted to make sure Flair doesn't go to New York. I think they should have, you know. Brought in Big Ted and Jane and uh, took him to a Braves game and talked us out. All right. So Flair finally makes his debut on Superstars of Wrestling. Uh, you'll remember this for the air date of uh, September 28th. Um, he lays out uh, Vince w- with the chair, the accidental chair shot. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. But I thought his first appearance was primetime. Uh, yeah, I meant wrestling appearance. Oh, 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 in ring. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I just, you know, do you remember that, that, prime that time one? Episode? The primetime one was like two weeks earlier, I think. God, that was so weird because in that weird studio where the fans are sitting down and that, you know, that fake. It's like it's like you know how that weird primetime studio they went to and, and Vince is in the, in the workout jumpsuits and stuff and you know and then out comes from the side the side of the sideways and he comes out in his, his black robe and there's rick flair on wf television and i remember like you know, of course being like just shocked you know to see that as well and then but looking back like going back and looking at the stuff you know when i was you know like well, 10 years 12 years later i remember being like ah oh, man they, they should, i wish it would have been a little bigger than just this just little studio with like yeah what yeah 15 fans and in, in attendance so actually what happened is I think Piper's trying to hit Flair with a chair mm-hmm. and then he hits Vince on accident and Vince does a stretcher job. Yeah, yeah. That was that was uh, shocking. That was extremely, extremely shocking and, and exciting. And and I was, you know, I was hyped for Piper Flair just because, you know, I didn't see that stuff. Obviously, I wasn't watching wrestling in 1983 and all that stuff or even before, you know, the Mid-Atlantic stuff. But like... I saw like the Starcades and and I know Piper was there, you know. So and I remember reading the magazines, the PWIs, and the histories of the what happened before when I started watching. And I remember being extremely excited to see that matchup and uh, to see Piper and Flair, like, you know, for my for my eyes in the WWF ring, and they had some great matches too. So uh, he does a. Um it looks like a, a several several night run with Piper, and then his first singles match with Hogan is going to is scheduled for the end of October at the Oakland Coliseum Arena, 
And then he and Hogan are going to do a few more matches uh, in L.A. and in Arizona. And then he'll work Madison Square Garden, but against Piper and not Hogan. That's the tentative plan. And we are in uh, mid-October at this point. So uh, Flair and Hogan advances are very strong, but the Flair and Piper advances aren't as strong. So it's pretty clear what the WWE audience wants to see, and it's Flair and Hogan. They're, they're not... You know, they're not too interested in in seeing Flair as they don't see Flair as a big draw without Hogan at this point. Um, So it's so funny because remember, you know, it was only um, it would have been that summer that Sid comes over and he's the big get. Right. Like Mm -hmm. he's he's the guy who's who's the big get for for WWF. Sid tears his bicep right around this time frame. And who do they use to work house show matches against Jake? They're trying to get Randy Savage back. And Savage at this point, obviously coming off of that 91 WrestleMania, WrestleMania 7, he retires. He loses the retirement match, wants to start the family with Elizabeth, is off of the stuff. And, uh, and you know, they're trying to get him back. But he now... Randy Savage has leverage, right? Because he's a wanted man and they, they want him back. They're losing Sid. They need someone to do, you know, the, the B towns or, or, or the non Hogan towns, uh, I, I guess. And, um, and so they're trying to get Savage back. So this is also the time of this famed, uh, Sid vicious, Brian Pillman, Mike Graham squeegee story that happens. You remember that one? Is, yeah, yeah, this is where he uh, he goes in and starts beating up. Was he threatens someone with a squeegee, right? He threatens, is it Pillman? Or? So I, I, guess yeah. w, I guess WWE and WCW were running the same town, and Sid walks into a bar, and it's all the, you know, all the WCW guys, Brian Pillman and, and Mike Graham are hanging out. And um, Sid's got the injury, so, you know, he he's... Not, he doesn't want to get in a fight, but he's bragging to those guys about, ah, oh, you know, life is so good on this side. And he talks about, talks basically says to Pillman, you know, you'll never be a big star because you're not, you know, you don't have the size. And so Pillman's frustrated and, you know, Pillman's ready to fight. And Sid's like, nah, man, I'm injured. Come on. You know, I'm not going to waste money, you know, getting hurt. I'm already injured. And so he leaves, he bails out. And then he comes back and he's like, now I want to fight. He's got a squeegee <laughs> in his hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Pillman just snatches the squeegee, the squeegee out of his hand, and then it, it, it's pretty much done. Yeah. So um, Flair is calling himself the real world champion. Like you said, Bobby Heenan was calling him, him that. And they're trying to get that belt back because the belt is now on WWF TV. So Flair's side is like, look, pay me the money that you owe me. You can have the belt back. Um, so the first Flair Hogan match actually happens on 1022. So it wasn't the Oakland Coliseum Arena match. There was supposed to be, or there was a TV taping on October 22nd. Flair was supposed to face Piper, but because Hogan and Piper were about to do a short run, they wanted to try the match out. So instead, Hogan faces Flair in a short match in Dayton at the end of a TV taping. And they try the match out before they take their show on the road there. So that first match is uh, 1025 at the Oakland Coliseum Arena before 14,900 fans. 
Um, not a sellout, but Big Dave reports that it's the largest wrestling crowd in the building in a couple of years, even with a very bad undercard. They dusty finish the Oakland match, and uh, Flair uh, Flair uses a foreign object to pin Hogan, and then the second referee comes and they reverse the decision. Isn't there like some grainy footage of the finish of that show from like a handy cam out there on YouTube? Yeah, I'm um, actually know the gentleman that that uh, took that footage, Peter Hines. Um, Peter Hines was a uh, cameraman, friend of uh, uh, these. Uh, Kind of like, I guess it would be like a backyard company. They would do like, it's called Extremely Strange Wrestling. There's like Insanely Strange Wrestling, but they are Extremely Strange Wrestling with J.R. Benson, who was a manager at APW, Ron Head, who was a ring announcer for a- a- APW. And they were like this, these weird group of dudes. And actually we saw, you, know, you were actually, we, we, you were there with me at the at the, the J-Cup show in San Francisco, but I saw J.R. Benson after, I haven't seen that guy for, God, 20 years i don't know i don't know something something like that and i saw him and uh you know he's like one of his first wrestling he doesn't really he's losing like sacramento and it's like one of the first wrestling matches he's been to live in a long time so they had the you know they used to go around and you know peter hines like had a camera was one of those guys that had a camera you know attached to him and he had a camera everything i mean he's wrong around abw just filming stuff random stuff who knows if i'm on stuff you know <laughs> and um, i'm sure i am with the audience stuff and uh and, and he he was the one that filmed that uh that match um that hogan flair match from oakland so heenan goes uh, out on the road with flair and heenan is a retired manager at this point because he's you know he's had so many neck injuries from all the bumps he was taking back in his day but Vince wants him to go out on the road with Rick, um, probably also to make sure Rick's not getting into you know trouble at the same time. But um, so, but Heenan's neck is is really bothering him, and you know there, there's a joke he, in Flair's book. Heenan writes that um, he uh, he just can't keep up with Rick because Rick you know wants to drink all the time and stuff. So. Heenan comes off the road and everyone remembers that Mr. Perfect replaces him. But there was a time in um, there, there was a time frame where Heenan was off the road and they didn't have a replacement. So I this is I didn't know this, but Jimmy Hart actually took Heenan's place for some mm-hmm. of these matches. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember reading that, too, and being like, wow, that was that was weird. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Heenan and then, and then comes the. uh executive consultant or something like that his yeah. title was mr perfect was to rick flair and and who do they really want for that spot not jimmy hart john tolis no, <laughs> no, the coach no i don't know who cornet wow and they could have had him too 1981 i mean i'm sure he turned it down i'm sure uh wow he turned it down because he's he's starting smoking mountain right he was getting yeah. plans for that going yeah so the um, they come back with this match in the God, territory. That would have been money, man. That would have been, been crazy. Gosh. They they come back uh, three weeks later in the territory to the Cow Palace, and they don't even do half of the business at the Cow Palace. So that sh- that match drew the first time, didn't draw as well the second time. Mm-hmm. But part of that reason is because. They they did an experiment, and I guess this is the match you do the experiment with, which is the only advertising they did for the show was the TV. So the local TV, that's the only advertising they did 
for the return of Hogan and Flair. So they didn't do any newspaper stuff. They didn't do the radio stuff. They didn't do any other TV stuff. They literally were like, okay, how, like we're not going to spend the money on, on the advertising and let's see what the house is. And the house was way down. Yeah. Oh, go figure. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's, that was a big mistake. Definitely. So the, uh, savage, uh, Jake, the snake angle with the Cobra biting the arm stuff happens right around this time. Very memorable. We've talked about that on this podcast, like a couple years ago, probably Mm -hmm. that whole angle. Um, and so finally, um, there is uh, the uh, Survivor Series is coming up, and there's word that there's going to be a second show uh, a couple of nights later, or maybe almost a week later, called uh, Tuesday in Texas. And the first thought or the first information coming out of that, uh, that the show was actually to have Hogan and Flair in the main event. Obviously, it didn't happen that way. So like you said, Perfect becomes Flair's manager. Um, Around this time, WCW takes WWF to court. WWF agreed that they will not show the real belt. They are instead going to create a replica belt. And then WCW was like, well, no, like it's it just looks the same. So that doesn't help. And that's when they started doing uh, the tag belt and then doing the black uh, the black circle over the tag belt. Yeah, yeah. Jack Tunney's a order that he's not going to show that belt anymore, and they're going to block it off from now on, which was I always thought was a bummer. So we get to the Survivor Series. Rick is in the opening match with uh, the Mountie and Ted and the Warlord on his team. He does get his own entrance. But very quickly, Rick is doing um, he, he, he's doing all of his Ric Flair stuff, but doesn't look strong almost the entire match. But at the end, he outsmarts everyone and doesn't get counted out or doesn't get disqualified or whatever it was. And he's the lone survivor of the match. But if you were someone who didn't watch the NWA growing up or WCW, and this is the guy who comes in. He wasn't book strong very at all, really. And, you know, that's it wasn't really his character anyways, but also just kind of looks like a WWE guy. Yeah, yeah. I remember being a little disappointed. I think this was one of the better matches on the show, but at the same time disappointed in how he was presented. I thought they should have just had him and Piper be a special singles match on this show. Yeah, why do you put him with all those guys? I, I, one of the most bizarre things during this early run of Ric Flair and WWF is him in that interview with these guys around him. You had the Warlord, his Phantom of the Opera. You had a guy from the Mountie from Canada. <laughs> and, you know, uh, and it just looked so goofy at the time. And I remember being like, just like so like taken back by it. And it was very jarring. But, uh, you know, they, they went out, the match was entertaining. And he had some good people that work with, like Davy Boy and and you know Piper, of course. But but uh, you know Flair's always been as a heel. He, he's a giver, right? So he's the one oh, bump, yeah. he's bumping on the ring. That, that's his style. He's he's not never been like this dominating heel uh, wrestler or champion or whatever. He was you know he, he just that's not a style. So and it's a different style than what 
is presented with WF's time where, you know, they're bigger guys or big monsters compared to Flair. So I would say to a fan that didn't watch WCW or NWA, they would probably think, who's this guy? You know? And I think that was the idea. Like, cause at the end, like he, you know, he survives, but he also like kind of like collapsed, you know? And, and then like, is like down and like, he like, yo, this guy's, you know, this guy, he's claiming he's a world champion, but we know he's BS and they're saying he's BS, but, but you know, but they're trying to tell us something different. Look, as a Ric Flair fan, I dug all of it because I was so entertained by it. But if I put myself in the shoes of somebody who was so WWF at that time, I would not have been impressed with him coming in. Like, this is your first showing of like, this is the guy. And then he just sits there and takes clotheslines from Davy Boy Smith and, you know, gets beat up by, hopefully he didn't get beat up by Virgil. I don't exactly remember, but... um, I'm sure he gave Virgil some stuff for sure. <laughs> so, uh, so the main event, or actually, it was in the middle of the show. But the the main, the real draw for that show was Hogan and Undertaker. That match was terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but Rick, is, Rick comes out at the end. He slides a chair underneath or into the ring so that the Undertaker can give Hogan a tombstone on the chair. One that Hogan said gave him a neck problem, and supposedly. <laughs> Undertaker was like heartbroken over that he actually hurt Hogan until he watched it like 10 years later and was like, this dude's head didn't come close to the mat. Dude, like his head was like by his belly button. That's, you know, that's how far it was. And, um, you know, I, ha- I, at the time I had, you know, this is the same, same, same era of my life or time of my life when I was giving my friend Chad Ng. VHS tapes or tape to tape uh, pay-per-views for me. So I'd, I'd watch the next day. So I'm sure Mr. Ron Ng was really upset at me again, but he loved me like a son. So that was great. He, you know, he was a little pissed for three hours, but um, <laughs> his TV, man, you TV was a, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And, uh, and um, I remember cause then in, in the pay-per-view, so they just show it clearly. It's like clear as day. Like his head gets nowhere near the chair, but I don't know. I'm sure you watch this on the network. I don't know if they edited that down or, or, or what? At no, the I just watched it. It's, oh, so they have the original, the so they had yeah. the original pay-per-view broadcast. So that's, that's very cool. I mean, I mean, not, not cool for fan, new fans to get into it and they're going to call BS on it. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, yeah. I remember, uh, that this match was, wasn't the best. Definitely. But I think they made up. They had a better match at Tuesday in Texas. The match was better at Tuesday in Texas, but there's also some really sloppy moments. Like Hogan throws Taker into the ropes and he just like collapses. Like he almost like kills himself running the ropes. Well, yeah, it uh, it snapped on him. Yeah. Like, you know, you know, he hit it wrong and it snapped snapped on you. And, and that's usually very really dangerous. I mean, people can really get injured with that. And he uh, and he and like and his gimmick is he's dead. So yeah. You can't be like, oh, damn, you know, or, or show any kind of pain. And that's right. That probably hurt like a son of a bitch. And it did hurt like a son of a bitch. So, OK, so so Flair helps the Undertaker beat Hogan for the uh, WWF title. They run it back uh, six days later, this Tuesday in Texas. And Hogan wins the title back. Flair tries to interfere again, but Hogan beats him up and uh, wins the title but because of Paul Bear's interference and Hogan hitting Taker with the urn, the title gets held up and it will be decided at the Royal Rumble, which is where we will leave everybody. But I did have one more quote that Rick had for, for his book. <clears throat> you know, Rick 
I, he, he has a lot of respect for Vince, that's for sure. So, um, in his book, he says, during a tour of Japan with Beth, I called him, meaning Vince, about a critical tax problem. I owed $200,000 to the IRS. When I arrived home, the money was there, despite the fact that I was working only on a handshake. Simply, Vince came through for a guy he believed in. No notes signed, no guarantees asked. It's a shock that as soon as I entered the World Wrestling Federation, my crippling anxieties evaporated. And as I predicted, Jim Hurd got canned in the fallout from the incident. I'll have a large pie with pepperoni, please. <laughs> awesome. So just, uh, you know, next week, like I mentioned, we'll, we'll tell the story of the Royal Rumble. I'm trying to get my buddy, Brandon Draven, who is uh, the partner of Big D on the K Fabulous Lucha Brothers. I'm going to try to get him on because he has memorized this match and knows like the entire story of the match by memory. So I want to talk to him about this because this is like one of his favorite matches of all time. And he gets super jazzed about this. I think he watches it every year. Um, so I'm going to try to get him on uh, for a segment next week while we talk about this. And also, if I can pull this off, we'll see. Um, I'm supposed to talk to uh, Big Dave on Sunday because we're going to interview Pat LaProd for the um, for Wrestling Observer Radio because Pat has a new book on Andre the Giant that is really good. I've only read a little bit of it, but like factually, like we're talking about talking to Andre's family, like his brother and sister and cousins. And like, you know, we're talking about back in the, in, in the old days, talking, talking about Andre. So it's so far, it's really good, very well researched. And at that time, if I can get him to talk about if he, if he has any memories whatsoever of that Oakland uh, Coliseum match, I, I, I want to try to get his, his just the memories of that match, but also, you kind of what we talked about, like, you know, the house show run and, you know, why, why wasn't this the biggest like house show run in the history of the business? Like, what was it that made it so that Rick, you know, maybe wasn't the, the gigantic star and maybe this match wasn't the, the most gigantic match of all time, even though like for you and me, we're like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. But, you know, other for other fans, they were like, oh, this is really cool, but I don't know if this is necessarily the biggest thing of all time. Yeah, I wonder if it was also too. I mean, obviously, you know, hearing about them, um, their advertising strategy for the, for the second, the second wave, but also at the same time, like, was this past its peak? I mean, for us, we were stuck in this wrestling bubble. This is what we watched every 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 chance we got. But like, you know, it was still the cooling off point of the '80s, right? And people have moved on to other things. And it's back to the hardcore, the hardcore that like us who are continuing to watch it. So. I wonder when it came to the casual viewer to, to hear about this match, maybe just, they were just over at this time, you know, they just didn't really care. Maybe a curiosity the first time, which is, you know, Oakland doing 14,000, even though it wasn't sell out, but still, still a pretty damn good number. Oh yeah. But you know, maybe after that, it's like, okay, we cool. We saw it and we got, we got this, we got the same BS finish. We kind of complained about during the, uh, 1988 year with, with the, the dusty the overuse of the dusty finish mm-hmm. and maybe that's kind of like just put a bad taste in their mouth again and also as well and they all said okay now yeah we, we saw it now we're done with it yeah no i mean yeah possible i i mean i know there's some 
you know, some people say, oh, you know, Vince was never going to bring him in as, as an outsider. And that's what you needed. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, th- I know a lot of people think that, and they're probably right about that, but yeah, like the, like the, like that's, it was one of my things as when I was younger, I was like, this is the match I want to see. And I never got to see it. I didn't go to the house shows and we, we would get to see it. Um, what was it? Uh, 94, right? Yeah. Is that, is that uh, Bash of the Beach or Beach Blast or what, what no, was Bash, that show called? Bash, Bash of the Beach. beach. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we would see it then, and then um, they did a hell of a job. You gotta admit that '94 WWE did a hell of a job promoting that first match for sure. I mean, oh, yeah. follow up for sure wasn't the the best. Um, well, you know, also, what Shaq was in, Shaq was Shaq, there. Mr. Shaq. T was there. The cast of Thunder in Paradise was in the front row. Oh, Linda yeah. Linda was in the front row. Young Brooke was in the front row. <laughs> um, also, too, like, what if you're just a casual fan or maybe a former fan? Maybe you're like you're into the '80s, you're Hogan, and you, and you also knew about the NWA. You knew about Ric Flair. But then you kind of tune in, you see Ric Flair at the funeral parlor. I know, yeah. I, I remember... Just another character. I remember seeing that, too, and that was just so weird. You had Ric Flair being Ric Flair, but you had Paul Bearer, who, to me, as a, a kid growing up, was the... Like, I've told the story probably many times on this podcast, the most embarrassing wrestling character Mm-hmm. For me, growing up, because my dad would always seem to walk in every time Paul Bearer was on television and say, "You still watch this crap?" It was like it was like the line. It was almost like a sitcom line. You still watch this crap? Like that's every time he would come and watch me watch wrestling. And then, of course, later on, I start booking, promoting it. So yeah, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, it's just it's that. I, I mean, Ric Flair on the funeral parlor is just segments. I still to this day, I just can't. It's just too, too, they're just weird to me because they were weird back then too as well. Yeah, no. So you know, we'll, it's funny because you know we're doing Flair Savage this month, but then when we're done with this, we're gonna skip ahead to '94 WCW, and I think mm-hmm. we're gonna do the Halloween Havoc match. So, in telling the story to Halloween Havoc match, you have to tell you know the the Hogan getting to WCW and stuff. So that'll be fun too. A lot of fun. All right. All right, so uh, that'll be it. Uh, I want to thank John and uh, and thank Robert. We'll be back next week to tell more of this story and whatever else is going on in wrestling and MMA and boxing. Um, one 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 thing that I just recently read: Eddie Hearn from Matchroom was the one basically saying that Dana was crazy. And if Eddie Hearn is telling you, oh man, that you're crazy then, yeah, you're probably crazy. So I'll yeah, end Now we just need Vince to say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dana said he and Vince are the only ones with enough uh, with enough courage to, to do events right now. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Maybe he didn't say courage, but he definitely said they are the only two who are willing to do it. Uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but uh, anyways. All right, so thanks to, thanks to John and Robert again. Uh, I am Double G. We will see you when we see you. Peace out.